season in between is an exit 52 production written and produced by me jake luke the information included is a byproduct of rigorous research the sources of which you can find indexed in the show notes special thanks are owed to my teammates spencer eric brian and taylor for always being there to offer up some help some laughs or both This podcast is dedicated to the Baltimore sports fan, to anyone who feels stuck in the middle in life, and to the enduring memory of Steve McNair, who helped me fall in love with Ravens football in earnest. Episode 2, The Old Guard. September 10th, 2006, NFL opening day. The Baltimore Ravens have just put the finishing touches on a blowout victory over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Raymond James Stadium. Under the searing Florida sunlight, the cold weather team was the one who brought the heat. With Baltimore's defense forcing three turnovers and consistently setting up a new look offense that managed to capitalize when they got their chances. It was an opening week game that was rife with storylines for the Ravens, who were returning to a historic site for the franchise. After the original Cleveland Browns moved to Baltimore in 1996, every move they made led them to the 2000 season, when an all-time great defense and a ball-control, run-first offense led them to the Super Bowl that year. With his first two draft picks as the team's decision-maker in that regard, Ozzie Newsom set this precedent with his new, yet-to-be-named Baltimore franchise by selecting Jonathan Ogden and Ray Lewis in the first round. At 6'9", 345, Ogden was every bit the cornerstone-type left tackle you would take at fourth overall, with his movie star good looks and matching charisma only rounding out the total package that was mainly comprised of dominant game tape and elite measurables. Despite the pick seeming to be a no-brainer in retrospect, Newsom made it under some pressure from the team's well-intentioned but at times meddling owner, Art Modell. Seeking to sell tickets to a new fan base that had been starved for football ever since the Colts had bolted from town in the dead of night in the winter of 1984, Modell had his heart set on picking Nebraska running back Lawrence Phillips with that fourth pick, which would be their first in their new home. Whether it was godlike foresight that told Newsom Phillips would be a colossal bust with a litany of off-field issues, or, more likely, the judge of character and skill that would lead him to many smart decisions down the road, Baltimore's young de facto GM ignored Modell's pleas to take Phillips and selected Ogden at fourth overall instead. The first pick in the history of the franchise was an important sliding doors moment for several reasons. The first and most important is that Ogden would go on to become a future Hall of Famer, solidifying one of the most important positions on the field for a decade-plus for Baltimore. The second, more nuanced reason is that it set a precedent of checking the ego of Modell in a key decision-making juncture. The longtime owner had been running this franchise since the 1960s and made plenty of controversial decisions along the way. A marketing mogul from the greatest generation, a la what you'd see on a show like Mad Men, Modell was a -a one-of-a-kind person and his larger-than-life persona translated over well to his profile as the owner of the Cleveland Browns, starting in the early 1960s. He was intelligent, sharp-witted, and had a flair for the dramatic, which in turn meant that there were very few rooms Art would find himself in where he didn't feel like he was the smartest person in it. These are traits and quirks that can serve a person well in life, and they very much did for Art on the burgeoning business landscape that was America in the 1940s and 50s. In fact, they served him well at times in his stewardship of the Browns. But not always. And often, the way he conducted himself would rub those who'd do business with him, or his constituents, i.e. Browns fans over the years, the wrong way. Early in his tenure as owner, Modell fired the legendary Paul Brown from his position as head coach. 
Brown was an outsized figure of his own, and having actually started the Cleveland Browns and reluctantly given them his namesake before taking them on to do great things, he was looked upon by many as an untouchable figure of football royalty. A rift between the two most powerful men in the Browns organization began to develop, as the blurred lines between the coach and the owner grew simultaneously hazier and more defined, while pro football continued to boom into more of a business than just a niche career path for those lucky enough to make it in. Players such as Jim Brown began to more and more appeal to the affable and gregarious Modell to try and get around the stern and authoritarian Paul Brown, undermining the latter's authority on key decisions. As the story goes, it was Brown's decision to permanently bench running back Ernie Davis, who the club had traded significant assets for while he was suffering from terminal leukemia that caused Modell to finally and very controversially fire Paul Brown. But that didn't prove to be a catastrophic move for the club as they moved forward under Modell at all. They'd shortly go on to win an NFL championship game under Brown's replacement Blanton Collier, a feather in the cap of the team's new owner, and perhaps an ego-emboldening move as he continued to settle into his role. Over the next few decades, Modell would continue to make controversial decisions that would estrange him further and further from the city of Cleveland, with the main one being his purchase of the town's ballpark, Municipal Stadium. In 1973, he took control of it at a cost of $1 per year, via a new entity he dubbed the Stadium Corp., with the idea being that he'd assume all operating and repair costs, giving him carte blanche to do what he wanted with the building while taking a burden off the hands of the city. As a part of this agreement, he became the landlord of the property, and officially was renting it to MLB's Cleveland Indians from that point on. He feuded with the Indians over many issues, including gate revenue, until their dissatisfaction was such that they got the city to build them a new baseball-specific ballpark. The lost ticket sales from the Indians playing at Municipal in the summer would prove to be a tough blow to Art's ledger, which was already beginning to find itself in the red thanks to the monumentally difficult task of maintaining an increasingly outdated ballpark. It was possible that with all of his ownership duties, plus the responsibilities of maintaining Stadium Corp, Art had bitten off way more than he could chew. For a master of the universe like him, that would be tough to admit, but eventually he would tacitly acknowledge it with a much more reviled decision that was a direct consequence of this entire mess. All the while, the Browns settled into a role as a good but not great franchise, who consistently failed in the postseason throughout the 70s and 80s. Ozzie Newsom had a front row seat to a lot of this as the Browns' 1978 first-round draft pick out of Paul Bear Bryant's University of Alabama squad. He entered the NFL as a wide receiver, but was quickly moved to tight end at the behest of then-head coach Sam Rutiliano. Ozzie was worried about the switch, but Rutiliano told him not to. He'd still catch plenty of balls. And he very much did so, going on to be one of the all-time greats at his position, and one of the early examples of a great pass-catching tight end following the revolution of the position by Mike Ditka. Perhaps the only disappointment of Ozzie's incredible playing career was that he never made it to or won a Super Bowl. But by the early 1990s, when he officially retired and made his transition into the Browns' front office, that was the least of the organization's worries. As early as the mid-70s, Modell had begun to voice his displeasure with the outdated municipal stadium, which continued to fall into a state of growing disrepair year after year following the Indians' move and the subsequent loss of revenue. Compounding the matter was that Art, perhaps shadily, had dumped some of his loans from other business dealings into the Browns, and as he continued to lose money on the stadium and by extension the team, he began to come to the conclusion that he may never become debt-free. This was a result of, and also led to, a number of desperate gambits, one of the biggest of which was purchasing a plot of land in a local suburb to serve as a site for a new stadium. When this was discovered by a minority owner of the Browns, ostensibly one of Art's partners, who didn't agree with the use of funding, Modell was taken to court, where he'd lose the case raised against him in 1986. From there, his options were running thin, and Modell pushed the city of Cleveland hard for taxpayer-funded improvements to Municipal. 
He had the city's elected officials put to vote a sin tax to raise up to $175 million to make the improvements he saw necessary. But due to a frayed relationship with the city after decades of failing to find any magic between the two parties, Modell privately worried that the measure would be voted down. It was at this point in the 1990s that he began to have talks with the city of Baltimore. The long and short of it is this. The syntax would eventually pass, and Cleveland would get a new stadium and a new football team to populate it in the late 90s. Meanwhile, Modell and the old Browns, not keen to wait around any longer for improvements, packed their things up and headed to Baltimore in the spring of 1996 after announcing the much maligned move mid-season in 1995. I'd rather avoid getting into the deep and ugly specifics of it all, as that's an emotionally charged story for another podcast. If you'll take one thing away from Art Modell's time in Cleveland, it should be this. He cared deeply about the Browns and their success while he was their owner, and at times this combined with his supreme confidence in his own business acumen to create a chaotic organizational experience. Modell had every right to be confident in his abilities as a businessman. But the fact is, that's a different thing than being a great sports owner sometimes, and it was his belief that he could solve all the club's problems on his own that was foolhardy at best and at times negligent. The distinction to be made is that he was more Jerry Jones than he was Daniel Snyder. While Jones somewhat infamously meddles with his Dallas Cowboys operations at every turn, you can tell that he does it because of how much he cares. It's an interesting comparison for a variety of reasons, but maybe an unrealistic one based upon the fact that Jones would never be put into the position of believing that he had to move the Cowboys from Dallas. But despite what the city of Cleveland thinks of Modell because of such an unfortunate situation, there are those who to this day believe he was a good man and a good owner. One of those people is Ozzie Newsom, who continues to advocate for Modell's Hall of Fame candidacy, something that drags on into the year 2023. After a Hall of Fame playing career of his own, Newsom joined Modell's Browns front office in 1991, under then-head coach Bill Belichick as a personnel man. It was from Belichick and with other figures on that staff, such as Nick Saban, Thomas Dimitrov, Scott Pioli, and others, that Ozzie learned the trade of football executive. Belichick saw great potential in him and groomed him to be maybe the most versatile cog in the machine that was the Browns organization, having him split time between scouting duties and sideline responsibilities as a part-time member of the coaching staff. At one point, I think I had the longest title in the history of the NFL, Ozzie said of those days. I was a head coach offense slash pro personnel director. By then, I think I knew I wanted to be on the personnel side, but Bill kept pushing me to coaching. Ozzie eventually would go on to become strictly a personnel man, and much of his strategies on that side of things would be influenced by the cold, calculating Belichick. While we all know that Belichick would go on to build a dynasty by doing things his own way, Newsom looks back on watching him operate during his Cleveland days and seems to think that as much as he took away from it in a positive sense, he also learned some important lessons on how not to handle things. By the early 90s, Bernie Kosar had been the Browns' longtime starting quarterback and a beloved figure within the organization and fan base who had helped bring stability to the position. It was also by that point that Kosar, who had been with Cleveland since the mid-80s, began to see his level of play drop off and injuries start to pile up. Belichick, who had inherited Kosar as opposed to hand-picking him, began to favor backup Vinny Testaverde, who he personally had brought into the building. Kozar's starting job was on thin ice heading into the 1993 season, and when he got injured once again, Testaverde took the starting job and began to run with it, until he got injured, which in turn returned Kozar into the lineup. It was after a 29-14 midseason loss to the Broncos that Belichick, fuming and emotional, released Kozar outright. It was a move that retroactively appears to be in keeping with Belichick, but Ozzie remembers the situation as something a bit different than that. 
He believes it was in that moment that Belichick was angry and allowed his emotions to get the better of him, leading to a move that was rightly panned by Cleveland fans and media. I came in Monday morning and it was done, Ozzy said later. It was a mistake. It happened because people were angry and frustrated. The lesson I learned from that was never make a decision, a big decision, right after a game. Look at the tape, calm down, and then if you think it's time to make a move, make it. But never while you're still emotionally wound up from the battle. It's a profound, smart viewpoint on personnel decision-making, and one that would prove itself instructive to Newsom's strategies at large. While he would always prove to be consciously aware of and respectful to the human side of the business, Ozzy would also never allow his feelings, or the feelings of others, to sway him from making what the best decision he felt would be for the organization. When Modell cleaned house after the 1995 season ahead of the Baltimore move, he kept Ozzy on and made him the executive vice president of player personnel. This wasn't exactly the role of general manager, but when considering the duties of that role that people will think of, such as signing free agents and having the final say on draft choices, that's what Newsom effectively was from day one. Or was he? Ahead of the still-yet-to-be-named Ravens' first-ever draft, Ozzy was under pressure. The team's owner and his now longtime friend turned boss wanted to select the flashy player, the offensive superstar, the player who would sell tickets in Lawrence Phillips. Traditionally one of the least predictable teams on draft. A next up, the new team, the Baltimore Ravens. Joining me now, the former player personnel director for the Cleveland Browns. This is the first NFL draft in history not involving a team from Cleveland. So, Mike, your former team on the clock right now, is Phillips the pick for them? I think he's the pick. That's what they've said all along. Art Modell said he would pick Lawrence Phillips if he was there. They need a back that can make big plays, especially if they go to a one Ozzie had his eyes on the franchise back. cornerstone, the unexciting but ever-critical bedrock upon which he could build the foundation of a team in Jonathan Ogden. To Chicago, which one of Rice or Hardy will be Donnelly? Which one will be Butkus? Both Jacksonville and Arizona are hoping that both Hardy and Rice are Dick Butkus. Lawrence Phillips. Is this Baltimore's pick with six minutes to go? Has to be. Uh, I think they're trying to make a deal here. There's no question because I think they can go down a little bit, Chris, but there's absolutely no question in my mind that they have to take Lawrence Phillips based on the rushing attack of the Baltimore Ravens last year. Leroy Horde, 547 yards. Biner, 432. White, Hunter. But look at the production as far as touchdowns go. Just three all of last year. I don't think there's any question that Lawrence Phillips can fill their need. I personally don't necessarily agree with all the criticism that Phillips has been getting regarding his character and the issues that have happened off the field. Yes, he has done some things that he's not, I'm sure, proud of and not happy with, and the results have turned out that way. But the thing is, is this is a young man who is going to be a, a good football player. I believe he'll be an asset to a community if he's taken and chosen there. I would take Phillips... In the end, the de facto GM prevailed and stuck with a refrain that would partially define his Hall of Fame career by taking the, quote, best player uh, available. The Ravens feel the pick is in, and let's go up to the podium and see if this is where Lawrence Phillips will play in the NFL. With the... uh, Fourth choice in the first round, the Baltimore Ravens select John Ogden, tackle UCLA. The New York Giants are now on the clock. Jonathan Ogden, six foot eight, three eighteen, is the Baltimore pick. You're not Lawrence Phillips. And as somebody once said, the plot thickens. The plot is now thickening. With a 505 40-yard dash, 9-foot, 5-inch long jump, 31-inch vertical leap, and 30 consecutive 225-pound bench presses, Ogden's scouting combine performance alone was enough to have NFL teams salivating. 
Among those doing so was then 49ers offensive line coach Bob McKittrick, who compared him favorably to the other top offensive line prospect in that draft, Tony Baselli. He's the best I've seen. This guy runs faster, jumps higher, and bench presses more than Baselli. Everything you can measure athletically, he's a little bit better. But perhaps more impressive than his Herculean profile was the type of person the Ravens had drafted. I know he's going to work hard. He's got a lot of pride, and he's a very smart guy, said San Diego Chargers general manager Bobby Beathard. Whatever success he enjoys, I'll bet you he won't change, and that's probably a tribute to his parents. Ozzie had gotten his guy, and looks back on the moment when he effectively stared down Art Modell, a man he had great respect and love for, and went against his wishes at a critical juncture, as a career-defining one for him. Looking back on it, the reason I'm still here today is because I took Ogden and not Phillips with that pick, he said. I knew what Mr. Modell wanted, but I also knew what I thought was the best thing for us to do. I figured if I was going to fail, I was going to fail doing what I thought was right. Lawrence Phillips would go two picks later to the St. Louis Rams, where he didn't last long, as issues with alcohol and the law would follow him for his extremely turbulent rookie year. He would ultimately be released mid-season in 1996, almost unheard of for a top 10 pick. His numerous attempts at making a comeback to the league over the next several years all ended in the same sad and tumultuous manner. In 2008, Phillips was convicted to 10 years in California state prison for multiple assault charges relating to a former girlfriend. It was while serving that sentence that he was convicted of many other charges pending against him, further lengthening his sentence to a total of 31 years. On April 12, 2015, Phillips' cellmate Damien Soward was found dead in an apparent choking, and Phillips was considered the prime suspect in the murder. While awaiting trial for this charge on January 12, 2016, Phillips was found dead by apparent suicide, hanging in a cell with a do-not-resuscitate note stuck to his chest. There were many bigger issues in the story of Lawrence Phillips than whether he would have been the right pick in the 1996 draft for the Baltimore Ravens, but it's simply impossible to contextualize the beginning of this franchise without considering how difficult a spot Newsom was in when making this choice, and just how important it is that he ultimately got it right. If you're listening to this, you probably know the story. Ogden would go on to become a first ballot Hall of Famer and was everything his scouting reports claimed he would be, Newsom thought he could be, and more. But what's the only thing better than your first ever draft choice going on to have a career like this? Having your second ever pick go on to do the same thing. In a sport in which the players wear helmets and can quite easily blend in with their other 21 counterparts on the field at any given time, Ray Lewis still remained hard to miss. He had started inside linebacker for the high-profile mid-90s Miami Hurricanes and entered the 96 draft as one of the top-rated linebacking prospects on the board. Unlike Ogden, though, as clean a prospect as you could find, there were some questions surrounding Ray that caused him to slip a bit. Working against his relentlessly high motor and high production on the stack sheet was an unconventional physical profile and a demeanor that was unique at best and probably grating to some teams evaluating him. Why was he not seen as a top 10 pick? Probably because he didn't have the ideal measurables, said Phil Savage, the Ravens director of college scouting in a reflection piece on Lewis's draft process. You got to think this is 20 something years ago. He's from Miami. He has the earrings. He's got the demeanor. It probably scared some teams away. Savage's note about ideal measurables is an interesting one, because if Art Modell had hypothetically kept Bill Belichick on staff, it's possible that Lewis wouldn't have even been on their board. 
The Browns were a height-weight speed team under Belichick. We had a height, weight, and a speed that would make you clean, and Ray did not make that height quota, Ozzie Newsom said. Belichick wasn't the only one who had this system in place, though. They were measuring our height at the NFL Combine, and I was like six feet one, Ray Lewis said. Bill Cowher kind of smiled and was like, hmm, little on the short side. I smiled back and said, great things come in small packages. It was classic. But in one of his early master strokes, Newsom did away with this rule. When we moved and Ozzie was elevated, that was one of the first conversations we had when we were revamping our scouting and player personnel situation, Phil Savick explained. Ultimately, that cap was lifted off of Ray and a number of players who were either short or considered slow for their position. It's safe to say there is no way to know if Ray Lewis would have become part of the Browns or the Ravens had the move not occurred and the change in leadership taken place. Baltimore set up a workout with Lewis in Florida, in which scout Maxi Bond went down south to take a look at him. After tracking Ray down to the University of Miami when the workout was supposed to take place in Tampa, Bond was blown away by what he saw. But he wasn't the only one there, and he certainly wasn't the only one who was impressed. Packers general manager Ron Wolf watched Maxi work me out, Lewis said. Ron just kept saying, I have never seen a backer run like you. I have never seen it. He said, I'm giving you my word that we will take you in the first round. You playing with Brett Favre? Oh my gosh, this can be the greatest thing ever. I was like, wow. Ray wound up being the third linebacker on the Ravens board behind Kevin Hardy and Reggie Brown. Having already taken what they felt to be a slam dunk in Ogden at fourth, Baltimore's brass wasn't convinced there were any such no-doubters left to be found at their pick at 26, Lewis included. But after a first round slide their way, the team had a needed inside linebacker and a prospect who would match up for them value-wise. Defensive coordinator Marvin Lewis stumped for Ray to be the pick, as did Maxie Bond, who couldn't get the picture-perfect workout he had conducted out of his head. There were a few people saying, he ain't big enough, Bond recalled. All he did was make all the tackles and do everything you asked him to do. We were in a meeting and I kind of stood up in front of Ozzy, Mr. Modell, and Ted and said, we have to make a decision and it's got to be Ray Lewis. I don't know whether they listened to me or got tired of me. With the 25th selection in the first round, the Baltimore Ravens have selected Ray Lewis, linebacker, University of Miami. Ray, uh, did we interview you first at the combine? Did you interview with anybody else? You didn't. You pissed everybody else off, didn't you? <laughs> you did? But look, uh, you are the second choice of the Baltimore Ravens, number 26. In the draft, you come in, you had a hell of a workout with uh, Maxi Bond when he came down. And uh, you'll be going on our defense, competing with the linebackers we have. We only have four on the roster right now. And just like that, the foundation had been laid out. The Ravens had just selected two future first ballot Hall of Famers with their first two picks in their first ever draft. While it was quite the auspicious start for them, it was difficult to tell that they were onto something special at the time. The team had not only just been named Ravens, they were operating with a skeleton crew comprised mainly of the holdovers from the Cleveland era, and said crew was headquartered out of a dusty old Owings Mills facility that had once been a police station. If you ask anyone in the know nowadays about Baltimore's organizational culture, you'll likely hear glowing reviews. Despite the bare-bones nature of the franchise's start back in the mid-1990s, all of that began right then and there. Pretty much. I mean, the uh, uh, the first pick in Ravens history, the choice really was a lot of people wanted him to take Lawrence Phillips, the running back from Nebraska. was a very high-profile star running back. There was the feeling that they needed uh, – they needed some sort of marquee player to establish themselves here. I remember writing a column on the Baltimore Sun saying, horrible idea. This was a guy that, that had lots of off-the-field problems, and I just thought he was trouble waiting to happen. And I just wrote it to see 
uh, because that's what I felt. And, you know, later people told me, he said, you know, Art read that column and it was like, oh, my God. Uh, but I mean, they made their own choice. And of course, they weren't very interested in what I had to say. But Ozzy made the right decision uh, to take Jonathan Ogden instead. And, you know, drafts a Hall of Fame, a future Hall of Fame player, offensive lineman who immediately you could see was pretty good. And then Ray Lewis, who just from the get go, the days drafted, it's like, oh, well, he's the second guy taken in the first round. And he's a little small and and uh, but he looks like he might be a pretty good linebacker. And then just from the day he was on the field here, it was very clear that he was something special, way better than where he'd been picked towards the bottom of the first round. So, you know, that and then it's up. Then the next year they took Peter Boulware in the first round and he was immediately a good pass rusher. And it, it was becoming clear they're pretty good at this draft thing. Uh, well, they were very good, you know, and, and, you know, Ozzy and his group, you know, I think they, 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 um, always did a great job and um you know i think they were they had a good young roster when we got there you know and they hadn't <clears throat> i think they were close getting over the edge uh winning more games and stuff but you know i gotta give them a lot of credit uh, they do they do a great job and i think they continue to do a great job and i think you know the staff we brought in i think it was a really good staff it ended up uh, you know a lot of guys end up getting head head jobs off that staff um so i think we had you know, good good staff, good um, you know front office, uh, the scouting department. I think they did a great job in working with the coaches and stuff. I think it was uh, you know probably one of the better working relationships you know that have been around you know in the, in the NFL. I think that's a that's a key thing for why they're still successful. It started with the even keeled and sharp eyed Ozzie Newsom, and it proliferated with those first several moves that he made in turn. The team's first-ever PR man, Kevin Byrne, reflects on the positive example Ray Lewis set in this regard. The first time I met Ray was at rookie camp, and I was going to take him on an interview before he saw the coaches, he said. As we were walking, I asked him his goals. He said, I want to be the best. You mean the best linebacker for the Ravens? He goes, no, I want to be the best of all time. The best linebacker of all time? He said, no, my plan is to be the best player of all time. Phil Savage has a similar story. That first rookie camp, Ray showed up to do the towel pull-up, he recalls. You throw two towels around the bar, grab them with your hands, and do pull-ups. Ray asks, what's the record? Lionel Vital, Scout, and Jerry Simmons, strength and conditioning coach, looked at each other and said, we don't have any records, we're a new team. Ray moves his arms back and forth and says, let me set the record. He jumps up there and rips out however many there were. Lionel comes upstairs and said, this Ray Lewis is special. You talk about a leader, it's just dripping from this guy. He's going to take control of this team and take control of this defense. Ray had initially been given number 53 and assigned the role of Will, or weak side linebacker, while 52 remained with veteran Mike backer Pepper Johnson. A combination of cap space crunch and an impressive camp from Lewis led to the veteran being released ahead of 1996, with Ray taking over the number 52 and the role of Mike linebacker. Lewis recalls the moment with fondness. I walked up to the huddle and there was no middle backer, he said. I thought to myself, wait a minute, this is weird. I heard the whispers and they were like, they released Pepper Johnson for this rookie. And Marvin handed me my number 52 and put me in front of the storm. He said, this is your defense. As they say, the rest is history. The very first game we played the Raiders, Ozzie Newsom said. They were driving and down in the red area and Ray came up with a pick. At that point, I know Phil and I looked at each other and shook our head. Yeah, what we've been seeing is real. It was a galvanizing moment for a franchise that was lacking an identity and needed a standard bearer to create one for them on the field. 
The left tackle they had selected at fourth overall was a damn good start in that regard, but no one at the time or since would become as synonymous with what it meant to be a Baltimore Raven than Ray Lewis. That interception made all the highlight packages and told all the scouts and general managers who'd looked past me on draft day that maybe they should have paid a little less attention to how tall I stood and a little more attention to how big I played, he recalled. Jonathan Ogden and Ray Lewis were the concrete foundation upon which Ozzie Newsom would begin his incredible tenure. But they were hardly the only pieces that would play a role in Baltimore hoisting their first ever Lombardi trophy since 1970 that Ozzie would bring into the picture. In 1999, Brian Billick's first season as head coach, Newsom went and nabbed a foundational piece for the team's secondary, an Arizona cornerback, Chris McAllister. Chris, Ozzie Newsom, how you doing? Hello. You all doing okay? Oh yeah? That's a great play. All right, man. Well, look. Uh, we're going to turn the card in. Here's the owner of the franchise to welcome you to Baltimore, and then the head coach will speak to you. At 6'1", 210 pounds, McAllister was the ideal build for a cornerback, and his production with the Wildcats, 18 interceptions in three years to be exact, were a rare match to tantalizing traits. The only risks associated with taking McAllister appeared to stem from what could best be described as a mercurial temperament. An intelligent young man from an intact California family, there was little to suggest why he had some of the -the off-the-field issues that he did, such as not taking academics seriously enough in high school, or a petty theft charge stemming from a shoplifting incident that Chris himself stated was just to see if he could get away with it. But there were certain, albeit small, red flags here and there. Thankfully for both team and player, it was nothing too serious to suggest that Chris would be a problem child, and it was his hard-working demeanor both on and off the field that made his pick at 10th overall in 1999 well worth it. That has always been Chris's strength, Newsom said of McAllister's work ethic. He's made some mistakes, but we've always known when it was time to work, time to play football, he was going to be there. Sage words that proved themselves true from day one. The Ravens already like what they see in the physical McAllister, reads a Sports Illustrated article from August of 1999 at the end of McAllister's first training camp. The son of former Eagles and Patriots running back James McAllister, Chris was a consensus All-American in Arizona. Last year, he became only the seventh player in college football history to return a punt, a kickoff, and an interception for a touchdown in the same season. Selected with the 10th pick in the draft, he was the fifth highest rated player on Baltimore's board. Mac has been better than anyone thought he would be, says Ray Lewis. That kid has quite a bit of moxie. The article continues. The 6'1", 206-pound McAllister has the speed to cover wideouts and the strength to confront the AFC Central's big backs. Equally important, he already understands his role in a defense that features Pro Bowl players such as linebackers Ray Lewis and Peter Bulware and defensive end Michael McCrary. All we need to do is hold up our men so that the quarterback has to reload and switch reads just once, says McAllister. By then, the pressure should land. You've seen our linebackers. When we shut people down and they get a chance to hit quarterbacks, oh man, everything in the world just seems to stop. C-Mac would go on to be another foundational piece for a Ravens defense that was slowly being built into a formidable one. But he was also yet another first-rounder, simply making good on the massive investment that Ozzie had made in him, joining players like Ogden, Lewis, Peter Bulware, and Dwayne Starks, who had been two respective first-rounders that came before him. It was a calculated risk that the mercurial talent would mesh with a growing locker room that contained a lot of big personalities, including at head coach. But with all of the cornerbacks' incredible tangible positives, it was one that Ozzie saw was worth it. As it happened, Newsom would find valuable pieces outside of just the obvious places as well, one of whom was a left guard that he grabbed in the fourth round of the 1999 draft just a few days later. Newsom had 
When the, the Maoris would, would, would go to battle, and, um, that, that was a, a form of intimidation. Call the ancestors back and they can connect with them before they go into war. And sometimes if they did the haka good enough, they wouldn't have to, you know, they, maybe the other, the other guys would just say, oh, they look pretty pumped, we'll just, we'll chalk Good draft value and foundational culture are two concepts that have come to define the Ravens in many ways, and Edwin Molotalo is a good example of both. The 1999 fourth rounder, McAllister's Arizona teammate, would quickly slot in as the team's starter at left guard, an early example of Newsom's savviness at identifying talent in the mid-rounds, and a good fit for the culture that the brash Brian Billick would begin to build up in his rookie year. He'd find his plays playing next to Ogden as a grinder of a left guard, bringing the right combination of technical skill and Polynesian war daddy Bedlam to an offensive line that would rounded form as one of the league's best in his first few years. Of course, his second year would be a championship-winning one, and a big part of that was because of who he and the rest of that O-line was blocking for Baltimore along Ravens the way. Select Jamal Lewis, running back, University of Tennessee. Ozzie Newsom was on the phone, and Ozzie told me, he said, hey, what did you tell me when you came up here to visit? And I told him I would be as good or better than any back in the AFC North. Breaks two tackles, Look breaks out. another one. The rookie from Tennessee. I had to go in and give my best to the organization, and I think I did. They give it to him straight ahead. Pick number five of the 2000 NFL Draft. Jamal Lewis, running back, Tennessee. Shot out of a cannon at 5'11", 245, Lewis was a rocket-powered brick shithouse who shed would-be tacklers with alarming ease and danced through defenses with a surprising amount of grace. Priest Holmes had been the Ravens' starting back for a few seasons by that point, after joining the franchise as an undrafted free agent in 1997, and he'd go on to become an Offensive Player of the Year and perennial Pro Bowler for the Kansas City Chiefs after leaving Baltimore after the 2000 season. One of the reasons he left is that his starting job was taken from the rookie Lewis pretty much from day one, and as good a back as Holmes had already been and would continue to prove himself to be, it would wind up being the correct decision. It's more the defense. They went to coach and was like, hey, look, well, we need to run the ball. You know, this is what we have to do. Smash mouth football for the Baltimore Ravens. They're just getting manhandled right here. What more can you ask for as a running back to know my number is going to get called 25 times a game? Up and over. Touchdown, Ravens are in the lead. And ran them to a Super Bowl. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Super Bowl 35. The national anthem, the flyover, it, honestly, man, I, I think it brought tears to my eyes. Super Bowl 35, and here we go. We can't lose this game. Let's go finish what we started. Lewis dancing by defenders, getting a nice block downfield. Handoff goes to a slithering Jamal Lewis. The pitch out, he got a block from Davis. He'll try for a touchdown. Baltimore Ravens are Super Bowl champions. It turned out to be a good day. Lewis was a bell cow back upon which the team hooked their fortunes to after turning to Trent Dilfer at quarterback midway through the season in 2000. With a defense led by Ray Lewis that was looking more and more historic every week, it became apparent that all Baltimore would need to do was give Jamal Lewis the ball 25 times a game and score somewhere around 17 points to beat every single opponent on their schedule. This turned out to be exactly what happened. With homegrown talents like Ray Lewis, Peter Bulware, and Chris McAllister, plus veteran mercenaries like Rod Woodson and Tony Saragusa, the 2000 Ravens blazed their trail through that season as one of the most unapologetically dominant teams we had ever seen.
The defense led the way as one of the best of all time. The offense controlled the ball and milked the clock by battering opposing defenses with Jamal Lewis, and Billick met the media head-on to answer for the many criticisms that were levied their way throughout the season for a variety of reasons. This ranged from everything from their unattractive style of play to off-the-field issues, like a murder trial that Ray Lewis and two friends became embroiled in in the early months of the 2000 calendar year, that Lewis ultimately served jail time for against his guilty plea to obstructing justice in the criminal trial proceedings in which his two friends were charged for the killings in. For better and worse, it was a catastrophic situation like that, as well as Baltimore's punishing play on the field, that led to their reputation as some of the league's biggest bullies. And hardly apparent is the Cinderella story that they really were, and as a former expansion team that had built themselves into a championship contender, seemingly overnight. Newsom had done this through incredibly savvy moves in free agency, a somewhat new phenomenon to the league, as well as a deft touch that he showed year after year in the college draft. This included 2000, when he nabbed Jamal Lewis first and also grabbed a small school linebacker by the name of Adelius Thomas in the sixth round. Thomas wouldn't contribute much to the Ravens' championship season in 2000, but there was reason to believe they had gotten another late-round diamond in the rough. Not even Southern Miss, the only school to offer Thomas a football scholarship, could have predicted he would be this good, reads a pre-draft Sports Illustrated piece on Thomas. After spending his redshirt freshman season as a scout team tight end, Thomas was moved to Bandit, a rushed defensive end, and he's been dominant ever since. Now beefed up to 252 pounds, he has used a combination of strength, 405 in bench press, speed, 455 in the 40, and athleticism, 40-inch vertical leap, to become the best player the Golden Eagles have had since Brett Favre, who left as the school's all-time leading passer in 1990. Thomas had a breakout season in 98, making 71 tackles among them a school record 12 and a half sacks, and was Conference USA Defensive Player of the Year. Through nine games this season, he has 30 and a half career sacks, 12 and a half more than any other Southern Miss player ever. There are times when I'm watching film and I say to myself, there's no way a guy can make a play like that, says Golden Eagles defensive coordinator Dave Womack, but he's so strong and so athletic that he makes plays most players can't. Ozzie's vision from when he started as a personnel man under Belichick in the early 90s was completed in the opening days of 2001. Jonathan Ogden recalls making the playoffs and Billick challenging the team to go on and win the whole damn thing as a galvanizing moment for the squad. I think once we made the playoffs, we started to really believe. I mean, maybe some of us believed a little bit before, but we did kind of buy into the, hey, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's try to get there first. But once we got there, I mean, I think it was like, I think we all were kind of just waiting once we got there. And that's why when Brian Billick said, it's time is now, it's time to win a Super Bowl once we got there. I think we're all just kind of waiting for that, to get in and then go for it. There was Super Bowl 35. On January 28th, the Bullies of Baltimore took the field against the New York Giants, one of the league's Tiffany franchises, and brought their bristling new kids on the block swagger from the opening whistle all the way until the very end of the game. The flashbulb sparkle. Back to throw Trent Dilfer. Throwing deep down the middle for Stokely. He's got it. What a pass. Dilfer threw right down the middle. He hadn't one here in Tampa Bay ever like that. That pass was gorgeous. Nice call. Nice call. It opened with that long touchdown, a dynamite call by offensive coordinator Matt Cavanaugh, in which Dilfer hooked up with 1999 fourth-rounder Brandon Stokely, another mid-round Aussie find, that set the tone. What they started, the defense finished, in typical 2000 Ravens fashion. 
Ray Lewis, who had spent the past five years developing into the league's best linebacker, had taken home the 2000 Defensive Player of the Year award. And on that night, he played like it. I mean, from the first snap, we was like, look, they better not get a first down. And every play was another step of saying, we're not done. Slant over the middle, picked up by Dwayne Starks. He's got a touchdown. Touchdown to Wayne Starks. Off to the races. Start all the way. Yeah, man. Leading the defense in a vintage sideline-to-sideline performance, Lewis made five tackles and defended four passes. He would be the driving force for a defense that didn't allow a single point to be scored on them, with Dwayne Starks, the 1998 draft's 10th overall pick for Baltimore, scoring a defensive touchdown on a pick six. The Giants' only score actually wound up coming on a kick return. I told Shannon Sharp and I told Jamal Lewis, give us 10 points and the game is over, Ray Lewis said after the game. That's not boasting. If you give us 10 points, game over. You go down against our defense, you're in a whole lot of trouble. We've dominated people like that all year. And they didn't score on us. Make sure you quote that. They didn't score on our defense. And funny enough, it was right after New York scored their only points by running back the opening kickoff, the Ravens would salt the game away by doing the exact same thing. Jermaine Lewis, whom Newsom had drafted out of Maryland in 1996 fifth round, received the ensuing kickoff from there and finished the job for the Ravens, with Billick having a front row seat to the action as he raced by the Ravens' sideline. All told, it was a drubbing for the ages, and one with Ozzie Newsom's fingerprints all over it. Chris McAllister came down with one of four interceptions for Baltimore, Jamal Lewis ran for a touchdown, and Ray Lewis took home the game's MVP award. In just five years, Ozzie had taken the bare-bones remains of the Cleveland Browns after their move and molded them into one of the most dominant teams in NFL history. It all started when he got into the front office of the Browns under Belichick, but it crystallized on that fateful spring day of 1996, when he faced one of the toughest decisions of his career. Take running back Lawrence Phillips and make team owner Art Modell happy, or stick with his gut and select the best player on the board in Jonathan Ogden. In retrospect, it was quite obvious that Ozzie made the correct decision, and it was in that decision that we learned just what a great football mind and judge of character he would wind up to be. Reflecting on that journey, Modell spoke of Newsom to the media after the Super Bowl win, making the admiration of the one constant figure in his football life over the past 20-plus years abundantly clear. He is the architect of this team. He's the architect of the Super Bowl team, and he's architect on this, this version of, of the Baltimore Ravens. We are in the transitional stage, and uh, I, like, I compare the relationship I have with uh, Ozzie and, and Brian to the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. Ozzie is the composer, and Brian's the conductor. And together they work well together and have had nothing but success. Uh, it's been a very wonderful relationship. In the case of Ozzie, uh, um, we've been through a lot together over the years. His loyalty to me and to my family is, is without question, the greatest ever exhibited. He was a, he's been, a, another, as I said, another son to me, and, and I love him dearly, and, and I'm proud to do this for him, not because he asked me, didn't know anything about it, but of course I think he deserves it. He's, the, without a question, in my opinion, the best, most, most proficient personal man in the NFL. In five short years, Ozzie had built a champion. All was right in Charm City, for the moment, but as we know, the NFL stands for not for long. 
Like Sisyphus rolling the rock to the top of the hill and watching it roll down to the base of the other side, the life of a Super Bowl-winning general manager can only be sunshine and roses for so long. Because once you reach the top of the hill, the expectation is that within a reasonable amount of time, you'll be back at the top of it yet again. Team building in the NFL is a fickle beast, the perfect combination of both art and science that can confound and humiliate even the smartest people the sport has to offer. Ozzie Newsom had unquestionably proven himself to be one of these people, but now facing the weight of expectations, how would he continue to prove this in the following years? Well, we already know the answer to that, and it's that he very much would, though it would take him a very long time to prove it with a Super Bowl yet again. His main obstacle over all that time? Finding competent quarterback play after scattering Trent Dilfer to the wind following Super Bowl 35. Elvis Gareback would not prove to be that solution, nor would the smattering of players that the rebuilding 2002 Ravens would run out onto the field as lambs to the slaughter. In the 2003 draft, he had taken a big swing on a guy with all the traits in Kyle Bowler, and while the Ravens won their first ever division title that year, the injured rookie quarterback wasn't on the field for their playoff game. Anthony Wright battled valiantly in his stead, but both he and the Ravens came up short against a rival Titans team, who by that point had very much figured things out at the quarterback position. Steve McNair had taken home co-MVP of the 2003 season and was effectively back on top of the football world as one of the league's most talented and popular players. Little did he, the Titans, or the Ravens, who would soon be an involved party, realize how quickly things would come crashing down in the ensuing years. The St. Louis Rams had not been in the playoffs since 1989, had not had a winning season since 1989. They'd had a terrible decade. They were 4-12 and 12 last season. They have gone from dreadful to dominant, seemingly overnight, led by the best human interest story in sports in years, their quarterback, Kurt Warner. Meanwhile, the Tennessee Titans, formerly known as the Houston Oilers over the last four seasons, have played in three cities in four different stadiums. They're symbols should be a post office box and a suitcase but their coach Jeff Fisher kept them on a very easy Super Bowl 34 St. Louis Rams versus Tennessee Titans in 1999 one year before the Ravens would be on the same stage and seal their dominance in the minds of America in punishing fashion Looking to seal up one of the biggest threads in the incredible story of his own by winning a Super Bowl with Steve McNair the Titans starting quarterback since 1997 Air McNair, as he had become affectionately known, was one of the biggest names in the NFL by that point, and his road to getting there was a pretty remarkable one. Born in 1973, McNair was raised in the Deep South in tiny Mount Olive, Mississippi, one of five brothers in an athletic family. I never thought I'd be this good, but people always told me that I was just like my brother, and he was in high school. They said the best quarterback that they ever come to Mount Olive. I took that into consideration that I was going to be better as I grew older. Steve would make good on what he just talked about in footage featured in his Football Life documentary, going on to become not only the best athlete in his family, but also one of the best in the history of Mount Olive. He had been born and grown up in a post-segregation era, but the significance of being a black man at one of the sport's most predominantly white positions was not to be glossed over. This was especially true when it came time for colleges to recruit him. He had mainly played quarterback, but also started other positions for Mount Olive, such as running back and DB. He received a scholarship offer to play the former by the University of Florida and by Florida and Florida State to play the latter. The stigma surrounding black quarterbacks is still alive to this day, but back then it was even more prominent. As such, it was somehow all the more fitting that Steve committed to a historically black Alcorn State University in the Southwestern Athletic Conference to play QB starting in 1991. 
He played 43 of a possible 44 games and dominated not only the SWAC landscape, but the conversation surrounding college football at large. Alcorn State itself was equally caught up in the hype. I mean, there was no standing room in the stands. The hills around the stadium was packed, and it was just a great atmosphere. An overflow crowd on hand at Jack Spence Stadium. I mean, it was so many folks just to see this boy. And for those of us who've seen him for all these years, we're like, <laughs> what else are you going to do? He's always going to be doing something. Are you starting to become amazed with yourself at this point? <laughs> the hype train following Steve kicked into maximum overdrive for a 1994 season that saw him throw for a mind-boggling 5,377 yards and 47 touchdowns in 11 games. His previous highs in those categories were 3,541 and 29. It was enough received to be named a 1994 Heisman finalist, coming in third behind running backs Kajana Carter and the winner, Rashawn Salam. After a historic college career that placed him in the pantheon of that level's all-time greats, the Air McNair experience was still just getting started. It's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. Maybe that's what the commissioner was looking at, his statistics at Alcorn <laughs> State. With the uh, third choice in the first round, the Houston Oilers select quarterback from Alcorn State, Steve McNair. All right. The Washington Redskins are now on the clock. All right, they had the guts to pull the trigger. Steve McNair, 14,496 yards passing in four years. 2,300 yards running the football. Passing touchdowns and running touchdowns combined 100 52 touchdowns. I don't care who he's playing against, Joe. That's unbelievable. You bring up the most important point, Chris. He's so talented, it doesn't matter from a competition standpoint. Watch him go back in the pocket. Good, quick release over the middle. People say, well, he can't work from under the center. You saw him do that. Now in the shotgun. Nice pocket presence. Steps up. Good release. The athletic ability he has is unbelievable. Why not scramble right and throw back across the field? Remind you of John Elway? Oh, just a little bit. In the 1995 NFL Draft, Steve was picked third overall by the Houston Oilers. He was the highest ever African-American quarterback selected in league history and drew comparisons to all-time greats such as John Elway, a great sign of progress for a league that had become much more diverse in the last 30-odd years. McNair arrived in Houston to play for a team coached by the well-respected Jeff Fisher and quarterbacked by veteran Chris Chandler. Seeking to groom Steve in the ensuing years, and possibly due to the fact that owner Bud Adams was actively seeking to move the team to Nashville, Fisher kept Chandler in the starting role and kept the limelight off of Steve as much as possible. Over 95 and 96, he started a combined nine games at quarterback, and while he always maintained his composure and legendary cool-headed charm with the media, McNair struggled with the lack of playing time over those years. Eventually, Steve's time did come, and when he got his opportunity, he never looked back. The Oilers began the process of their move to Tennessee in 1997, by which point Steve had earned the full-time starting role. And as the transient Oilers played in college stadiums and in Memphis prior to finally settling in Nashville, he turned heads with his fearless and physical play. We call it quarterback draw. Just took off running, and then he went in, hit the safeties head first. I said, man, you got to slide. He said, when I pull it down in passing situations, I'll slide. If you call quarterback draw, I'm a running back. That was Fisher, who after finally inserting McNair into the lineup, was very quickly realizing he had something special in his hands. By 1999, when the franchise had settled into Nashville full-time as the rebranded Titans, Steve and 1996 first-round running back Eddie George had combined to form one of the league's most formidable dynamic duos. 
but it was in their first game in Nashville that after struggling in the opening efforts of the game, that the Titans realized they would need to earn the loyalties of their new fan base. George, Fisher, and safety Blaine Bishop were called that day, and specifically as it related to Steve, in amazement. If you believe, we'll always believe. Right. You. You're, it's all you now. Let's go. We're down by nine with four minutes left. And Steve put ten points on the board. McNair takes a straight throw. He fires George 15. George 10. George 5. George I think it took them a minute to understand what McNair brought to the team. But you know what? What did he do? They didn't stride. It's like anything else. He never showed us that it bothered him. And I just remember him trying to do some of those heroics and diving for a touchdown. McNair turns it up, dives! Touchdown, Titans! Wow! McNair giving up his body! The game's tight. You know, you want to win a ball game, you got to do what you got to do to win it, right? He had this just simple approach. You know, it was just be himself. The Titans got hot in their first ever year under that name and rode Steve's consistent heroics and a little bit of help in the wildcard round via a play that's become known as the, quote, Music City Miracle, all the way to Super Bowl 34 in Atlanta's Georgia Dome. The ragtag Titans, who had had to win the hearts of their own city just a few months prior, were facing off against the supercharged St. Louis Rams, who were quarterbacked by a Cinderella figure of their own in Kurt Warner. It would prove to be a close contest, knotted up at 16-16 as the two-minute warning approached when Isaac Bruce would score a long touchdown out of nowhere to make the score 23-16 in favor of the Rams inside the two-minute warning. It certainly wasn't over, though. Kurt Warner had come out of nowhere to win league MVP as a former undrafted journeyman, but Steve had an incredible story in his own right and had a great opportunity to add yet another great chapter to it. Taking over with a minute 54 left in the game from his own 10-yard line, he'd have to take the Titans the distance to tie things up and likely force overtime. After crossing over to midfield, the clock was winding down in the game as Steve pulled yet another trick out of his sleeve to keep the Titans alive. McNair stepping up. Uh-oh, you got him, you got him. Rolling, needs help, stays on his feet somehow, throws, 11-yard line, it's caught, first Time down. Time they saved their timeout, they have it here, they stop the clock. It was an incredible play, a combination of McNair's uncanny balance and country strength to spin out of a sack that would have effectively ended the game, and hitting Dyson on the 10-yard line was just five seconds left. Steve and the Titans were 10 yards away from forcing overtime with no timeouts left and five seconds on the clock. You might already know how this one ends. The lasting image of Super Bowl 34 is playoff hero Kevin Dyson's arms outstretched, trying to will the ball into the end zone as he's tackled to the turf by linebacker Mike Jones. Steve had put the team on his back for much of that drive, scrambling around and making something out of nothing as he had done all year. Steve's teammates Eddie George and Chris Sanders remember the heartbreak of that moment, especially when considering the extent to which their quarterback had laid it all on the line like he had. up, confetti comes out the sky, and we just standing there stunned like, that's it? 
the last drive, that shows you how his life was. He never gave up. Tennessee had come up one excruciating yard short of keeping their hopes for Super Bowl glory alive. But there was reason to hope that as long as they had key pieces like McNair and Eddie George, both just 26 years old in the picture, those hopes would be alive for a very long time. While it was true the Titans wouldn't be going anywhere for a while, they would wind up being one of many in a long line of case studies that explain why you need to capitalize on the chance to win a Super Bowl in the moment you get one. As it would happen, Steve and the Titans would get another damn good shot at a Super Bowl the very next year, in 2000. At 13-3, they had proven themselves to be no fluke following their success in 99. They won the AFC Central after a fierce battle with the Baltimore Ravens, splitting their games with the plucky upstart and developing a bit of a rivalry with them as well. After resting over the bye week, the Titans took the field in the 2000 Divisional Round with their opponent being Baltimore, with rubber match bragging rights and a trip to the AFC Championship game on the line. Things got chippy early, with the Adelphia Coliseum Jumbotron operators playing a sizzle reel of inflammatory things that Ravens coach Brian Billick had said throughout that year, seeking to fire their own crowd up. As it happened, it worked exactly the opposite, firing the Ravens' badass defense up in turn. After a critical mistake by the Titans' defense to allow Shannon Sharp to get behind them and then an ensuing rushing touchdown, the score was 17-10 Ravens with 6.54 left in the game. For the second season in a row, McNair had a chance to drive for a tie and keep Tennessee's season alive. Once again, he didn't get the break that he needed. Good protection. Intercepted by Ray Lewis, and Lewis is on his way. He's going to go for a touchdown. Oh my. Here he is. He's got Eddie George all the way, but look, to throw a little bit behind Eddie George, but he gets hands on the football, and it just, he keeps it in the air, and it goes right to Ray Lewis. It wasn't a great throw by Steve McNair. It was a little bit behind Eddie George. Steve watched helplessly as an errant throw bounced off of Eddie George's hands and right into the waiting arms of Ray Lewis, who raced past the offensive players to the end zone and sealed the deal for Baltimore. The Ravens would go on to win the Super Bowl in dominating fashion, doing what the Titans couldn't a year prior. McNair had no designs on getting used to postseason heartbreak, but unfortunately it was now two years in a row of his season ending in crushing fashion. In 2001, Steve's role in the offense, specifically as a passer, would expand. After the departure of defensive coordinator Greg Williams, the Titans' play fell off a bit that year as they went 7-9. McNair had yet another strong season, though he missed a game due to injury, something that had become a bit of a trend for him over the past few years. His reckless, unapologetic style of play was part of what made him such a good teammate, but was also what had put his body on the line and caused some wear and tear to rack up. Between 1998 and 2001, Steve had had two operations on his shoulders, knee surgery, toe surgery, and a back operation, all as a result of the hits he had taken on in his career. As a result of one of his shoulder surgeries, he was afflicted with an infection that at one point was considered life-threatening. No stranger to hero ball that engendered all the damage, McNair wasn't shy about playing the role of Superman. Pain is something that is secondary to me, he once said. I could put that pain in the back of my mind as long as we are winning. I like to win. I like to compete. If we need that extra yard, I'm going to go get that extra yard. I was a defensive back in high school, so I guess I still have that tough mentality. It was said tough mentality that would give him problems down the line. 
but it wouldn't be an issue for McNair in the interim as the Titans returned to form in 2002 when Steve played a full 16-game schedule and led Tennessee to the AFC Championship game. Once again on the doorstep of the big game, McNair and co. would face heartbreak yet again, losing to the Raiders in Oakland, 24-21. McNair had done almost everything you could do in the sport, save for winning the Super Bowl. And after getting so close to it in 1999, he continued to come up short year after year. As it would happen, he would have a few more in his career, with one of his best chances at it coming in 2003. It was around this point in time that the AFC saw two heavyweights settle into their roles as the big dogs in the conference. One of these teams was the New England Patriots, led by Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. The other was a team that found themselves in the AFC South by 2003 due to conference realignment. The Indianapolis Colts were quarterbacked by Peyton Manning, the former University of Tennessee phenom who was delivering on that promise more and more each year. That will be especially true in 2003, when Peyton and the Colts would win the AFC South, though not without a big fight. Indy won the division at 12-4 in a tie with their rival Titans, whom they had swept that season to take the tiebreaker, and the third seed in the AFC behind the top-seeded Patriots and the second-seed Chiefs. That made the Titans the rare 12-4 fifth-seeded wildcard, but it wasn't just team records that the Colts and Titans shared that season. Manning put together an excellent campaign, throwing for over 4,200 yards, 29 touchdowns, and 10 picks. It was enough to garner him a very solid 16 MVP votes, a very good number, but not quite enough to pull him entirely away from the rest of the pack. Tom Brady received eight, Jamal Lewis of the Ravens was given five, the Chiefs' Priest Holmes took home three votes, and Ray Lewis, the AP Defensive Player of the Year, received two. Peyton had plenty on that crew, but not enough to fully separate himself from another candidate, one who also received 16. That candidate, and the 2003 AP NFL co-MVP of 2003, was Steve McNair. Still unable to fully shake the injury bug he had been fighting for years at that point, McNair only started 14 games in 03, but he very much made the most of them. He threw for 24 touchdowns, ran for an additional four, only tossed seven picks, and edged Peyton out in total passer rating by clocking a 100.4. It was just the third splitting of the vote in league history, and after all that he had been through in his nine seasons, from riding the bench to a drawn-out move to Nashville to battling injuries the last several years, Steve was thrilled with the honor. It is great, he said. My words can't express how I feel being co-MVP with another great quarterback like Peyton. It's very emotional right now for me that people look at me as being one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL, one of the top players, and a co-MVP. Manning, predictably, was also thrilled and was sure to show plenty of respect for McNair after the great season from his rival. This is such a tremendous honor, he said. Obviously, you look at all the former winners, it really is an honor to be on that same list, and to have such great teammates and coaching staff that allowed me to go out and make plays, and to be sharing it with Steve, a player I have the most respect for and who has had a tremendous year, and to be ahead of guys like Tom Brady, who's a friend of mine, and Jamal Lewis, a former teammate of mine at Tennessee who could have easily been there as well, it's tremendous. Amidst more platitudes reflecting on the great accomplishment, Manning made it clear that despite it being a great honor, he had the bigger goal of hoisting the Lombardi Trophy very much on his mind. It wasn't lost on Steve that he had faced an uphill road to receiving the award, but he was also fixated on the bigger team goal that was facing him in the Titans. I was healthy until the 10th week of the season, and I was able to do the things I would normally do, he said. I think this was my best year overall, and getting the MVP caps it off, but now there's absolutely more work to do. We want to get back to the Super Bowl and win it. Back to the Super Bowl. Steve had battled through a lot between 95 and his first appearance in the big game, and had essentially lived another football life in between then and his MVP award in 2003, especially considering what he just put his body through. 
With his team fully settled into Nashville and his playing form peaking like it hadn't ever before, he had plenty of reason to think that the time to do so was right then and there. Damn the fact that the Titans were a wild card and would have to go on the road, especially when their first opponent in the fourth seed was an old sparring partner of theirs, a team that they were very familiar with. The Baltimore Ravens would always be a tough out, and given their old divisional bad blood, they were sure to be in the 0-3 playoffs, even if they were having quarterback issues by then. That this would be McNair's last playoff run with the Titans would probably come as a massive shock to the then 30-year-old quarterback fresh off of an MVP honor. Even more shocking that in a few short years, he'd be brought in as the solution to said quarterback issues for Baltimore. Gary Anderson from 46 yards. It's good! It never looked like it had a chance. The 44-year-old kicker, the legend out of Syracuse, makes a huge 46-yard kick right at the very edge of his range. Oh, man, that ball looked like it didn't, it wasn't going to clear the line of scrimmage, let alone make it. Here it comes. Boy, they get this thing out fast, and they have plenty of room. Normally he runs In a wild back-and-forth game versus the Anthony Wright quarterback Ravens, Steve threw three picks and was arguably outdueled by the feisty but limited journeyman the Ravens had turned to after Kyle Bowler's injury. But no matter, as the team around him, including Eddie George, who was still running strong, carried the torch on that day for them. It was one last big playoff moment for McNair in a Titans uniform, who walked off the field that night excited about the next week and excited about a continued future in Tennessee after such a great season. Ditto could be said for the Ravens, who felt like they had all the pieces in place but just needed their first-round quarterback to be a hit to capitalize on the massive promise of the rest of their roster and the Super Bowl pedigree that Billick had effectively brought into the building. For both parties, things wouldn't quite play out as they had been expecting. McNair and the Titans traveled to New England to face off against the number one seed Patriots the following week, and in a frigid game with temperatures around zero, they took them to the absolute brink. Despite an early pick thrown to Rodney Harrison, Steve bounced back and hooked up with wide receiver Derek Mason to tie the game at 14-14 late in the third quarter. Adam Vinatieri booted a 46-yard field goal to put the Pats up by three and the ball in Steve's hands to go win the game with around four minutes left. After a gutsy scramble to get Tennessee to midfield, some suspect officiating put McNair and Co. in fourth and 12 with the season on the line. Facing an oncoming blitzer, Steve heaved a desperation shot up into the night sky, and it came down right at the hands of wide receiver Drew Bennett, who had a perfect look at the punt-like pass. But it clanked off of his hands, uncontested, and the Titans' season ended with the drop. It was a brutal break for McNair, who had played his heart out in a hostile environment and horrific conditions. That was it for his 2003 season, in which he had added the notch of NFL MVP to his wall and returned to playing to his incredible potential even despite his continued injury issues. He'd have traded it all for another shot at the Super Bowl, but very soon, that'd be the least of his worries. Little did anyone know, this was the beginning of the end of the relationship between Steve McNair and the Tennessee Titans. Summer 2004 the Baltimore Ravens have broken for training camp, and Kyle Bowler is surrounded by four different figures that he works directly with, all of whom are helping in some way to facilitate his development. In no particular order, they are offensive coordinator Matt Cavanaugh, who's back in Baltimore on a short leash, helping Kyle through game plans and strategies. There's senior consultant and Billick's longtime friend Jim Fossil, who helps him with mechanics. Quarterback's coach David Shaw is there to help with film breakdown and day-to-day -day adjustments. And standing tall over all of them with his fighter pilot aviators and trademark permascal is head coach Brian Billick, who's tasked with, quote, general oversight. 
If it sounds like there were a lot of cooks in the kitchen, consider this quote from Bowler at the time. Sometimes it gets a little, well, you hear different things, he said. But if there are too many coaches talking at once, I just go in and tell Billick. So far, it's worked out. It was undoubtedly a lot for a young, laid-back Cali kid like Bowler to have to deal with the full-court press like that. But consider what was at stake. The team was under Super Bowl expectations because of what they had been able to accomplish out of the blue in 2000. And in the three years since, they had just one playoff win to show for it, including a disappointing first-round exit in front of their fans the year prior in 03. They had the roster to compete for a championship, and everyone knew it. Everyone, including new owner Steve Bashotti, who Billick was having trouble getting a feel for at that point. Perhaps no one knew about the talent on the roster more than Billick himself, who had instituted this intellectual fire squadron around Bowler for the express purpose of doing one thing, making sure he didn't screw things up for a championship-ready roster. As they were nearing the 04 opener, Billick spoke of Bowler's uninspired rookie season like what had transpired was all a part of the master plan. When we started a rookie quarterback at Pittsburgh, everybody was saying, God, how can you do that, he said. But now I think they can see that it's a huge asset for us. That first start of a season is not looming over Kyle's head. He's been there, done that. That's invaluable experience. As for 2004 expectations, tight end Todd Heap, who hadn't been around for the Super Bowl, was both enthusiastic about the roster's talents and realistic about all they'd need from Kyle, which didn't sound like much in his eyes. Stating that they'd need, quote, just a few more completions a game from him, Heap made a comparison that his quarterback was likely tired of hearing already for several reasons. We don't need crazy explosive plays, he said. This team won a Super Bowl with Trent Dilfer. This was a strange place for a starting quarterback to be, wherein his team was essentially already muting their expectations of him and encouraging him not to screw up rather than try and play to his full potential. Bowler, whose physical potential certainly was immense, was magnanimous about it though, and basically echoed Heap's thoughts when broaching the topic of what was expected from him. I just need to play smart and complete 60% of my passes, he said. Expectations are a lot different when your goal is the Super Bowl. With four different voices in his ear, a Super Bowl-ready roster surrounding him, and the basic credo of don't mess this up following him into his first game, it probably shouldn't be much of a shock that Kyle Bowler's 2004 season was an underwhelming one. While he would start all 16 games, Kyle would post a pedestrian TD-to-INT ratio of 13-11. to Not much of an improvement on his rookie year extrapolated over a full season. And more importantly... The ready-made Ravens narrowly missed the playoffs at 9-7 after being touted as Super Bowl favorites. This had of course all hinged on Bowler developing into the talent he was capable of being. For what it's worth, Brian Billick is mostly deferential in this regard, saying later that all the pieces were there for the development to take place, including Bowler's work ethic, but for some reason it just didn't add all the way up. Whatever box you want to check when you evaluate a quarterback, and there's a lot of different people that'll have different perspectives on that. He checked off every box you could ever want. Strong arm, good athlete, smart kid, loved the game, had a certain personality that people were drawn to, you know, in terms of that leadership, had plenty of want, everything about it. It just, for whatever reason, the sum of the parts didn't equal the whole. For his part, Bowler acknowledges he could have played better, but he also looks back on the situation with some questioning of the Ravens' system and their sink-or-swim attitude that was largely predicated on the idea of not messing things up. From the get-go, I got thrown in right away. I was never ready to play, but obviously Brian Bill thought I was ready to play. They, they sort of did him a disservice. I mean, that you, you, I mean, he's the player and he takes the fall, understandably. But it's, in hindsight, not quite as simple as it looked, you know. Uh, there, was, there was a lot going on there organizationally. And, uh, 
you know, he they, they could have surrounded him with some some some, uh, you know, a true number one receiver, which they really didn't have. I think intrinsically a pretty nice guy. And, uh, you know, he was always easy to interview and and uh, he was getting booed and ripped and, you know, he would still talk to you. So you got to appreciate guys like that. So. With the disappointment of Bowler and the bigger albatross of missing out on the postseason with a roster that was more ready for it, the bill came due on an issue between Bashadi and Billick that had been festering. Matt Cavanaugh was fired as offensive coordinator, with the news that it would take place actually leaking out before the final game had been played. It was uncharacteristic for an organization and a locker room culture that was revered for being tight-knit and taking care of their own. Billick was incensed that the news had been leaked, but the writing had been on the wall all the year. Funny enough, it was Kavanaugh who seemed to be the most at peace with the way that it all played out. I'd be lying if I said it didn't shake me up a little bit to be watching the news last night and see my face come up on the screen over the words, Kavanaugh out, he said at the time with a laugh. I've known for a month this was coming. We've never been higher than 28th in offense all year. I know there are reasons for that, but in the end, the reasons don't matter. The results matter. Ryan and Ozzy and Steve can't keep me around for another offseason. They were subjected to ridicule for doing it last year when we'd won the division. Imagine what it would be like this year. I'm not concerned. What bothers me right now is that every day for the last month, my ex-wife and my kids have called me to say, you okay? How you doing? I love them for it, but it bothers me that they're spending that much time worrying about me. They've got better things to do. I'll find work. I hear they give you free food if you work at Arby's. Sounds like a nice perk. It was a classy way to handle a tough situation by Kavanaugh, and he would go on to have a future in the league. For the Ravens, though, time was running out on their young quarterback. Jim Fossil had been the head coach of the Giants when the Ravens blew them out in the Super Bowl a few years prior, and by 04, he had been brought on as an offensive consultant, part of the cabal of coaching talent all vigorously dedicated to facilitating bowlers' development. That task force didn't do any good for Kyle in 2004, but Fossil was a pro's pro, and was part of that which led to him being the internal hire for offensive coordinator moving forward. He and Billick had first met at a cocktail party in Palo Alto, California in 1979, and had since crossed paths in many different circumstances over the years. The most famous one was in Super Bowl 35, where they squared off as rival head coaches, Fossil leading the way for the Kerry Collins-led Giants, and Billick the leading man for the defensively dominant Ravens. Brian obviously got the better of his old pal in that matchup, but when Fossil was fired by Big Blue after a run of disappointment following the 03 season, and Billick felt he needed as much mentorship as possible for his young quarterback, he jumped at the chance to hire Fossil as an offensive consultant for 2004 in a role that he was probably overqualified for. Jim took it as an opportunity to work on a respected staff and help develop a talented young player in a low-key city like Baltimore, perhaps the perfect opportunity to rebuild his stock and get back in touch with his love for the game. A nice salve after a successful run in a high-profile town like New York, where legends could be made, but stress management was a prerequisite. Working directly with Bowler on mechanics was the gig, with the returning Kavanaugh taking the heat that an offensive coordinator was expected to, even in the best of times. After Billick had advocated in front of Bashadi for Kavanaugh to remain in that position following 03, Fossil felt he had at least a year out of the spotlight to stick around the game, collect a steady paycheck, and work alongside Billick, who had bested him on the big stage a few years prior. This would be a good learning opportunity, he figured, while he waited for a new head coaching gig to come along. But when Kavanaugh was ousted following the 04 season, it was right back into the spotlight next to his old sparring partner when Fossil was named as the Ravens' offensive coordinator for 2005 and hopefully beyond. Although things didn't work out the way I wanted it to this year, low turnover regarding head coaches, it just wasn't going to line up. The last thing I thought I was going to do was go back to being a coordinator, Fossil said at his introductory presser. But there was only one place that I even considered, and that was right here. I'm truly excited about doing this. 
As low-key and deferential as Fossil was about taking the job, Billick was equally effusive in his praise. For us to have Jim in this position is a huge asset for the organization, he said. He's just the man to take on the task of creating a new direction, a new energy, offensively of what we've been seeking. In somewhat cliched press conference speak, Jim laid out his plan for taking Bowler to new heights in the upcoming season. I would like for us to be more balanced, a lot more explosiveness to where we can move the ball quickly and have teams back up on us so that we can have our way with them, Fossil said. Unfortunately, the 2005 Ravens wouldn't do enough of any of those things. It was neither the hire of Fossil, the signing of wide receiver, Derek Mason, nor the doubling down on the position with Mark Clayton in the first round that would take Bowler to the heights or even the level of competence that was needed. Once again looked at as a potential Super Bowl contender, the Ravens' disappointment against those expectations reached an adir, largely thanks to their issues at QB. Bowler started week one, only to suffer a severe turf toe injury that would send him to the training room and keep him sidelined for the next seven games. 2003 hero Anthony Wright stepped in for him, but he wasn't able to muster the same magic, going only 2-5 and five in the games that he started. The keys were handed back to Kyle once he had healed up for the second half of the 05 season, but he didn't find the redemption he was looking for. With a touchdown-to-interception ratio of 11-12 to 12 and a sub-60 completion percentage combining with the injury, 05 was an amalgamation of all the reasons why Bowler had turned out to be a bust for Baltimore. When you can't stay healthy and you can't protect the ball when you are, especially on a team that are built on the idea of you playing careful, unspectacular football, then you simply aren't going to make it as a starter. If 2004 had proven to be the end of the rope for Kavanaugh and a new system under Fossil was to be the last saving grace for Bowler, then that thought experiment was yet another failure. Heading into the 2006 season, the Ravens were still going to be a loaded roster, and with Super Bowl expectations stemming from their talent and their pedigree, the clock was ticking, and many felt it was beyond time to go back. Nobody felt this pressure more than Brian Billick, who was now two years in a row without a playoff appearance, which had happened in rapid succession of a meeting with his team's new owner that was contentious, to put it lightly. As a result, the decision was made behind the scenes that the Ravens would look to bring in a veteran quarterback to ideally win the job away from Bowler and finally steady the ship that had gone severely off course. Bowler doesn't look back with a ton of anger on his experience as the Ravens starter, but in listening to his retelling of things, it's hard not to feel some sympathy for him. I'm not making any excuses. Uh, it was rough. I had some really good times at Baltimore, but I also had some really bad times. I felt like I kind of was always just trying to keep my head above water. It was kind of up and down with injuries, which doesn't help because you can't get that consistency. And uh, then you're fighting, obviously, you're fighting the fans and the media sometimes. Looking back now, which I was a little bit more mentally tough, I let some of the media and the fans get to me. You know, like I tell my son or I give my son advice as he grows up, only believe the people that are in your close circle. You have to be so mentally strong these days with media and all this kind of stuff because otherwise it'll tear you down and it's not worth it. And I know that for sure because... I played for 10 years and I let it get to me. Billick accepts his role in the failed development as well, and to this day serves as a cautionary tale of head coaches who put all their eggs in the basket of a first-round quarterback that ultimately doesn't pan out. But yeah, he is a good young man, and he takes on his responsibility. I take responsibility for it, of whatever you know uh, I could have done differently to make it make it happen for him. Maybe we'd have had a different career if he weren't put in a position where where he had that responsibility and that expectation early. You know, like you said, it's the good news, bad news. The good news is, gosh, they think highly enough that I'm a top 20 pick in the NFL draft. The bad news is, oh my God, now I got to perform like a top 20 pick in the NFL draft. Expectations. They're the biggest double-edged sword imaginable in sports and in life. 
The reality was that by the mid-2000s, the Ravens faced Super Bowl expectations pretty much every single year thanks to almost perfect roster construction, keyword there being almost, and because of what they'd been able to do at the dawn of the new millennium. But you could only ride that Super Bowl 35 goodwill for so long, and the fact was, times were changing. Steve Bashotti had officially taken over in 2004 and brought his own subset of expectations and quirks as an owner, as well as a brand spanking new facility in Owings Mills that with its stately red brick facade and immaculate upkeep had earned the moniker of the castle. If Steve was the king of this new castle and Billick and the players his knights, then the early run of this tenure saw more frustration and dissension among the ranks inside the castle's walls than he had bargained for. An anecdote from the end of the 2004 season illustrates this as the then out-of-the-hunt Ravens began to show some signs of trouble in what used to be paradise. At 8-7 and and hanging in the playoff picture by the thinnest of threads, veteran cornerback Chris McAllister openly wondered if the size of the new facility was contributing to a decline in overall team chemistry. We're so spread out in here, he said in the locker room to the media ahead of the last game of the season. Guys don't talk and hang out the way they did in the old place. He went on to state that he felt the team was too cliquish, also a big problem in his eyes. These comments were a bit ironic coming from Chris, who after having some issues with the law and proving to be a bit of a draft gamble in 1999, hadn't exactly shown himself to be the biggest team player of the year since. He had been every bit the player Ozzie had rolled the dice on, which is why he had stuck around so long, but it shouldn't have come as much of a surprise that he wasn't feeling the love around the building. Still though, it was something for the media and fans to glom onto, which they'll certainly do after a year of missing the playoffs. Baltimore wasn't even technically out of it by that point, and Billick was quick to default to a version of what Denny Green had told him after his row with Bashadi the year prior. It's a chicken and egg thing, he said. Did frustration in a locker room, or too big a locker room, cause us to be 8-7? and seven? Or is being 8-7 and seven causing frustration in the locker room? My bet is, it's the latter. To some degree, if they weren't all a little bit pissed off right now, I'd be worried. They should be pissed off. We're all upset about what's happened. If we weren't, something would be wrong. It was the right tone to strike for a locker room that needed some settling down, and for McAllister, who would continue to remain in the picture thanks to how damn talented he was. But that seed of dissent, combined with missing the playoffs after the come-to-Jesus chat with Bashadi, plus the failure that was Bowler and the 6-10 washout of 2005, one thing was extremely clear heading into 2006. Brian Billick's seat was officially hot for the first time in his tenure with the Ravens. This was only further accentuated by another key development that took place as the book had just closed on the 05 season. The disgruntlement of the heart and soul of the franchise, Ray Lewis. As the 2006 offseason kicked off, reports began to trickle out that Lewis had grown tired of Billick's laissez-faire coaching style that led to a lack of accountability in the locker room. While the star linebacker was maybe the biggest benefactor of the approach that gave preferential treatment to team leaders like him, he saw it as an abdication of leadership by Billick, who had created a culture in which players of lesser vim and vigor for the game than Lewis and some of his peers at the top of the roster fell asleep in meetings and effectively sleepwalked through games, resulting in losses. On the flip side, and only sowing further unrest, was the fact that the rank-and-file players of the roster resented the benefits of star status granted to Lewis, Ed Reed, and the like. But things had worn thin, and if it meant getting back to the cohesive and fiery unit they had once been, not just as a defense but as a team, Lewis seemed ready to do away with these extra privileges. Privately, he and a few other like-minded players advocated to Bashadi to fire Billick. Publicly, he refused to comment in support of his now-embattled head coach, a tacit statement in itself that spoke volumes about how frayed a once great relationship between the two had gotten. According to sources cited by the Baltimore Suns' Mike Preston, it had gotten to the point where Lewis was telling confidants he wouldn't play for the Ravens in 2006 as long as Billick was still in place as head coach. Yeah, it was that bad. 
and as dissatisfied as he was with Billick, his displeasure ran all the way to the top. In an interview with ESPN around the same time, Ray lamented the fact that the front office, i.e. key decision maker Ozzie Newsom, no longer supplemented the defensive line with big D tackles like Tony Saragusa that would allow for him to run free and make big plays. Compounding the issue was how little support the defense had been given by the offense over the years, highlighted by the quarterback-sized elephant in the locker room that had sat center stage for years. By that point, it was clear that Kyle Buller wouldn't be the answer, and Ray and many of his friends still holding over from the old guard could feel the clock ticking a bit. With his relationship with Billick whittled down to a critical point, and the front offices continued fumbling around in the dark in search of a serious solution at signal caller, Lewis was officially at his wit's end. Adding to his stress was reported cash flow problems, which he'd need a new contract with a fat signing bonus to help alleviate, something Newsom and company weren't keen to accommodate due to Lewis's injury issues over the past few seasons. All of this culminated in what could have been the breaking point that officially ended the era of dominant defense in Baltimore. As the 06 season kicked off, it became public that Ray Lewis had requested a trade. April 22, 2006, Mike Preston files the following to the Baltimore Sun. Trade would do a world of good. In an incendiary column that's classic Preston spit and vinegar, the salty columnist lays out why the 2006 offseason was the perfect time for the Ravens to part ways with their superstar defender, and it's better read than summarized. It's hard to strip a superstar of his power, especially since Lewis was the face of this organization, he starts. He's been the consummate professional throughout his career in Baltimore, no one trained harder in the offseason. He didn't just tackle running backs, he took away their desire to play against him. He added another dimension to playing middle linebacker because of his speed. He helped bring a championship back to Baltimore, one of the NFL's most storied franchises. But this is an organization that will begin a new era of Ravens football soon because some of the players have gotten old. Lewis is still better than 80% of the middle linebackers in the league, but he has basically missed two of the past four seasons with injuries. When he was out last season with a hamstring slash groin injury, his teammates were on a mission to prove they could win without him. Inside linebackers Bart Scott and Tommy Polly didn't complain, they just played and scrapped every game. At the end of last season, owner C. Bashadi chose to bring back Billick instead of siding with many players who wanted to change. According to a team source, Lewis swore before the end of the season that he would do everything possible to not play for the Ravens in 2006 if Billick returned. The Ravens have tried to play down Lewis's recent comments. They don't want to overreact because they still might have to play with him. But inside, they are fuming. Lewis has said he has never asked the Ravens for a trade, which contradicts statements made by Newsom earlier this year. On Wednesday, Lewis had a chance to publicly endorse Billick, perceived by many as a lame duck in 2006, but he declined to comment, further adding to speculation that he is unhappy with his coach. Through the offseason, Lewis has been letting his game plan leak out. He wants out. Ray Lewis wants a new contract, a new team, and a scheme built around Ray Lewis. It's Ray's world. He can no longer live off the $5.5 million he will make this season, and the $6.5 million he'll earn in each of 2007 and 2008. Poor guy. If he really wanted to be dominant again, maybe he should take less so the Ravens can sign some big-name defensive tackles to put in front of him. That will never happen. But on a team that has a lot of pressing needs, acquiring more draft picks would be more significant than keeping around an aging middle linebacker who has alienated teammates and fans. It's time for the Ravens to get back to the team concept. If possible, make a trade and move Ray's world to another zip code before it festers and becomes a problem in Baltimore. Again. A lot of people for, have forgotten that Ray Lewis requested a trade. Uh, and, you know, Ozzy was playing hardball. Played hardball, and he played hardball with a lot of guys, and that's what teams do, and that's what general managers do. And so he walked that line, and, and he, he was able to do that. 
And yeah, so it, it was getting to be, there was definitely friction offense against defense in the locker room. Uh, that was, that was going on. The, the, the defense was good. The offense was sputtering and it was, you had to manage that situation and uh, Billick had come in. Yeah. As a, as sort of a guru that had not worked out. And uh, you know, Ray being as emotional as he was, you know, got all fired up one night and, you know, who knows what he said exactly or what he felt. At this point, Newsom had no choice but to confirm Lewis's trade request had occurred and that it essentially dated back by over a year at that point. Given how much Lewis meant to many of his teammates, as well as the fan base he had reinvigorated from the franchise's inception, this was a hard fall from grace. But given the team's struggles to return to the heights they'd achieved in 2000, as well as their struggles to solidify things at quarterback once and for all, some of Lewis's gripes were pretty valid. But his trade request, despite Mike Preston's pleas, would not be honored. Newsom, and by way of his actions, Bashadi, clearly still felt that Billick was the right man for the job, and that things with their superstar linebacker could be salvaged. If the organization hoped to pull off the high-wire act of keeping all of these balls in the air in the effort to field a cohesive and competitive squad for 2006, there was much work to be done. First on the list of action items was righting one of the biggest wrongs of the last several years— replacing Kyle Bowler with a serious option of the position, who could guide the team back to the playoffs. Of all of Billick's failures, the fact that he, a prodigious offensive coach, had been unable to develop a quarterback or bring an effective passing game to the Ravens stood out as a glaring blemish on his tenure. To be fair to him, he hadn't exactly been given a ton of legitimate options to work with at the position. As part of a few moves that would eventually assuage Ray Lewis's concerns, that was about to change. September 24th, 2004. The following headline was filed to UPI in their sports news section. McNair hospitalized with bruised sternum. Steve McNair was hurt on a scramble during Tennessee's go-ahead touchdown drive, but was able to remain in the contest as the Titans took a 12-7 lead that wouldn't last in a 15-12 loss, the article reads. McNair, last year's co-MVP, was hit while running for a first down that set up Chris Brown's 26-yard touchdown run with 537 remaining. McNair missed an open receiver with a two-point conversion pass and took off his shoulder pads on the bench. McNair had trouble taking deep breaths after the contest. The Titans would go on to lose the game 12-15 after a late Jacksonville comeback. It was their second loss of the year, dropping them to 1-2, but the real loss that day was the prospects of Steve repeating what he'd done in 2003. His injury would turn out to be a long-term one, and with McNair in the lineup for only five more games in 2004, the Titans would finish 5-11 and in a hard crash and burn from the competitive form that they'd shown over the last decade or so. But more to the larger point was the concern over Steve's future as a football player. His issues with breathing after the sternum injury didn't quickly subside, making little things such as playing with his son a burden on him. Due to these difficulties, Steve had conversations with his family about whether or not he wanted to continue playing football, leaving the Titans organization in a state of limbo. Eventually, he decided to commit to continue, consummating the decision by opting into a surgery in which he'd had a stronger bone from his hip grafted onto his sternum in order to bolster it. Having filtered in and out of the lineup with the injury in 04, Steve didn't play particularly well, but his return was a welcome one by Titans team officials. I think it's a stabilizing force within the organization, and of course, I think he feels good about his ability to take things over and see if we can get this thing headed back in the right direction, General Manager Floyd Reese told the Associated Press. It doesn't mean that you're going to win every week, but you certainly go out there with your chances improved by 200%, knowing that you've got a quarterback of that caliber under the center. Having made one of the harder decisions of his life, McNair came away feeling good about returning to the field and sticking with a job he had been born to do. 
I'm excited about coming back to play this season. I feel good physically. My sternum is healing, he said after the surgery. I am in good shape, haven't had any problems throwing, and expect to participate in some of the mini camps. I'm looking forward to the season, being a leader for the younger guys, and getting back to winning football games. While Steve was excited to get back to his winning ways, the Titans were undeniably heading into a bit of a transitional period. In February of 2005, they released six players to clear out a total of $28 million in cap space, as they had been hard up for some breathing room in that department. 2005 would bring a lot of new faces into the fold for the Titans, many of whom were young, cheap players, and one of whom was a coach. As a result of this salary purge, McNair was for the first time in a while playing for a team that wasn't outright competing. Eddie George had left ahead of 2004, Derek Mason signed with the Baltimore Ravens ahead of 05, and with that, Steve was the last of his old guard remaining in Nashville. Unfortunately for him, his age would start to show a bit. McNair accounted for a respectable 17 touchdowns in 2005 against 11 picks, a solid ratio, but his overall play wasn't close to the heights he had achieved just a few years earlier. More important, there were a few other issues that arose. First and foremost, the Titans went 4-12, and a continued backslide from their 5-11 and effort in 04, and yet another losing season for a franchise that had grown accustomed to success. The other issue was that of Steve's health. He was plagued by a back issue that caused him to miss two games, the second of which was the last of the season, and a fitting end to a losing campaign. A losing campaign that would prove to be Steve's last as a Titan. April 4th, 2006. The following headline goes live to Tennessee-based Action News 5. Titans lock out McNair. That day, Steve had shown up to the facility to work out and rehab his back in the hopes of getting healthy and prepping for the 06 season. He was told by Titans officials to go home. He wasn't allowed to use team facilities to work out. Why the sudden cold shoulder to a club legend who had put his body on the line for them for the past decade? The answer was twofold. First and foremost, it was a money issue. And tied into that, the fact that Steve had... Well, put his body on the line for the Titans one too many times by that point. With a then sizable cap figure of $23.46 million on the line for the upcoming 06 season, the Titans, specifically team owner Bud Adams, feared the liability of being on the hook for that kind of cap hit if Steve were to injure himself on team property. Thus, they locked their doors to him and told him, you don't have to go home, but you can't work out here. A grievance would be filed on McNair's behalf via the NFL Players Association, trying to get him back into the facility. It was through that process that the team's stance became clear. They've actually denied any wrongdoing in not permitting him to work at his place of employment while under contract, NFLPA spokesman Carl Francis said. At this point, we're moving forward to try to bring some remedy to this. The organization, ostensibly on behalf of Bud Adams, released the following statement explaining things. We have no choice but to protect the club and its future from the possibility of having a significant amount of our salary cap at risk in a single player should he sustain a major injury, the statement read. This is entirely a risk management problem. Head coach Jeff Fisher went into damage control mode when reached for a statement, saying that the situation had simply been blown out of proportion and that they'd soon get things under control. Regardless of whatever efforts the NFLPA was making, Steve was in good hands from a representation standpoint. His agent, Buss Cook, was one of the great cowboys in an industry that was chock full of them, and he and his now aggrieved client went way, way back. In fact, Steve had been his second ever client. His first? Brett Favre. So it would be fair to say that Cook would have some serious investment in ensuring that McNair's future, that is, the final few seasons of his career, would be secured. Steve was told that until he got his contract straightened out, he wasn't welcome at the facility, Cook said of the controversy. Heck, he's got his contract already straightened out, and now he's trying to fulfill it by reporting for the offseason. When it became clear that coming to a resolution, as Fisher had suggested, would involve Steve renegotiating his contract to a more manageable cap number, Cook didn't hold back on airing out the Titans for what he felt were shady business practices. 
The reason his cap number is 24 million is because they kept asking him to restructure every year to create space, he said. This guy has done everything for the team, and he has two or three really good years left. Now, they treat him like this. The interesting subtext of the situation is that the Titans, who were already trying to get Steve to negotiate his cap number down yet again, held the third overall pick in the upcoming 2006 draft. When Jeff Fisher had been reached for comment about the lockout situation, he provided his thoughts while in Southern California at a pre-draft workout with USC quarterback Matt Leinart. Between Leinart and Texas QB Vince Young, who'd beaten him in the 06 Rose Bowl to win a national championship, it was all but guaranteed that the Titans would have a great shot at one of the top two options to allow them to reset at the position. They almost certainly would be taking it. The only question was, how badly did they want Steve to remain in the picture to mentor whoever they selected? Without the reworked salary number, the answer was not bad enough. April 29th, 2006. A few weeks after the Titans locked out McNair, they selected his apparent successor in the freakishly athletic and physically imposing Vince Young with the third overall pick in the NFL Draft. For the Titans, it was almost too good to be true that a player with the tangible abilities and big game resume of Young would fall into their laps just as Steve was on his way out the door. But there was a problem. After the draft concluded and Young was tapped to be the next Steve McNair by many in Nashville, there was the awkward matter of the current Steve McNair still being on the roster in the middle of a labor grievance with the team. Thankfully, despite the ongoing grievance review by independent arbitrators, the selection of Young was part of what spurred on a resolution of the situation. After Kyle Bowler's disappointing 2005 season, it was obvious that the Baltimore Ravens were going to be looking for competition at quarterback for him, if not an outright replacement. All offseason, though, they had sat out of the free agency and trade carousel. As it happened, this is because they were closely monitoring the situation of their longtime rival quarterback, Steve McNair. On day two of the NFL draft, after the dust had settled on the Young selection, the Titans gave Buss Cook permission to begin to speak with Baltimore about a potential contract for McNair should a trade eventually take place. The matter of the grievance would need to be worked out, and it was at least weeks until it ultimately would be. But for a relationship that had been percolating for a while by that point, this was the first concrete shot across the bow. As it happened, it was a good thing for the Ravens that they had moved so quickly. On May 16th, arbitrator John Fierick came to his decision on the grievance after presiding over a seven-hour hearing on the matter. His decision? That after review of all the evidence, the Titans were in violation of their contract with McNair by not allowing him to work out at the team's facility. It was a big victory for Cook and McNair in the moment, but it didn't necessarily resolve the bigger issue at hand. That is, despite the fact that he was still on the roster, the Titans had essentially already moved on from McNair, leaving him in no man's land. The Cook-McNair party had already had productive talks with the Baltimore Ravens on a contract, but a trade hadn't been possible during the grievance. Now, everything was still somewhat in play. That included returning to Tennessee. With this element now resolved, we assume Steve would rejoin our offseason program at some point, said Steve Underwood, the Titans' general counsel. I also would expect to see discussions between the Titans and Buss Cook reopened in an attempt to work out something that would be beneficial to both sides. It was the last part of that quote that had Cook less than convinced in the good intentions on the part of the Titans. I guess we'll find out right away what this was about, Cook said. Did they really fear the consequences of an injury, or were they trying to force Steve's hand on taking on a new three-year contract that would pay him less than he would make with the Ravens in one year? Buss would get his answer in a few short weeks. June 7th, 2006. John Clayton files the following headline to ESPN. Titans, Ravens agree to McNair trade. In the article, Clayton details that trade talks had begun to develop in the last few weeks and were made easier by the fact that both parties had already agreed to a contract paying Steve $11 million in 2006, as Cook had alluded to after the grievance case was won. We have granted permission to Baltimore to give Steve McNair a physical, which we expect would take place in the next 24 hours, the Titans said in a statement. 
Upon passing of physical, final trade terms will be agreed upon. The final terms appear to be a coup for Ozzie Newsom and the Ravens. To secure McNair's services, they were sending a conditional fourth-round draft pick to Tennessee, liable to become a third-rounder depending on escalators that depended upon Steve's performance in 2006. Obviously, the best situation would have been somehow to have been able to pay him what his market value was and keep him, Buss Cook said. Without that, it's best for everybody that Steve moves on. Yeah, we, I mean, you know, they were in our division back at the time, and, and so we played them twice a year and had a lot of big battles with them, um, had a lot of respect, you know, uh, for how he played and, and what he brought to the game. And, you know, so I think having that, you know, twice a year and even playoff experience against him and having, you know, that up-close look at him for years, you know, I think we we felt we had a you know pretty good feel of what he was like and had to go against him and, and stuff. So, yeah, I think we were all, all very excited about that when that happened. That's for everybody was maybe a slight exaggeration especially considering the way the Titans organization was made to look in the wake of it, courtesy of some comments made by Steve's most prominent new teammate, an outspoken linebacker who wore number 52, that was willing to wade into some heavy territory when discussing the way McNair and the Titans' eventual breakup had been handled. I don't ever want to turn this to a a black-white issue, but it will really puzzle me, seriously, if anybody would ever told Brett Favre to make that move, if anybody would ever tell Peyton Manning, not to walk in an Indianapolis facility. Nah, I, I, I can never understand it. And I never will, I never will, because it's, it's heartless. It's heartless to do a man like that without an explanation. Never one to back down from controversy, this was vintage Ray Lewis, speaking his mind on something few would dare and defending a man who he'd become good friends with and would now be a teammate of. The Titans franchise were ready to hit back though, releasing the following statement. As we said repeatedly through this difficult off-season process with Steve, we definitely could have handled the situation better, but the notion that race had something to do with it has no place in this discussion. We respect Steve a great deal for what he did and meant to this franchise. I think you would be hard-pressed to find a franchise in the NFL that has done more for African-American quarterbacks than this one, and we hope that Steve will someday join Warren Moon in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Though he admittedly felt hard done by in the process and agreed with Ray's assessment by comparison, McNair kept a stiff upper lip and was classy as ever while transitioning over to Baltimore. Ray said that he didn't want to suggest that it was a racially motivated decision, but he said the same people would never have made the same decision on Brett Favre or on Peyton Manning. Do you agree with his theory? Everybody have a theory. You know, but, you know, I, I try not to get into that um, racial, um, you know, statement. But, and I'm, I'm, I'm all about giving people the benefit of the doubt. You know, I, I always um, say, you know, you can't mix your personal feelings with this business. And I always feel like, you know, if you do, that's when things like that happen. It's why it'll never happen to a Peyton man. It never happened to a Brett Favre. And it probably would never happen to those guys. But... It happened to me, and that's all that I can account for. As uncomfortable a topic as it was and continues to be, Ray was absolutely correct that African-American quarterbacks are judged on a different curve. Whether it had any bearing on how the Titans treated Steve on his way out was impossible to really know, but the veteran quarterback's classy handling of it all was in keeping with his already admirable stewardship of the idea that a historically white position could benefit from the diversification it had begun to see more and more of in recent years. His drafting at third overall in 1995 was essentially the forefront of this movement. From a football perspective, another loser in McNair coming to Baltimore was obviously Kyle Bowler. Despite all he'd been through and how much he'd ultimately disappointed, though, the soon-to-be fourth-year quarterback sounded ready to report to 06 camp as a good soldier. 
If Steve gets here or when he gets here, we'll handle it then, Bowler said as the trade details were beginning to emerge. But as far as now, I'm just out here competing and trying to get this offense to where it needs to be. I'm going about my business right now like I'm the starter. That's the only way I can think of it. But for a Ravens team that had been starved for a steady hand at the position, something that Kyle had been the opposite of when healthy, acquiring McNair was an exciting proposition. Tight end Todd Heap had been drafted in 2001, just missing out on the glory of Super Bowl 35. He had been hoping to reach that pinnacle in the five years he'd been in the league, but had always been stifled by the lack of a presence at the most important position on the field. Having previously played with McNair in the Pro Bowl, he had this to say. You can tell from his mannerisms on the field and how he portrays and handles himself. He definitely brings some stability to the quarterback position. Stability. That was going to be the key word for a franchise who had, perhaps understandably, sold themselves on the idea that all they'd need to return to the Super Bowl was a solid bus driver at quarterback. McNair, I'm trying to remember, was 32? Uh, I can't remember. He had drafted in 95, so he's 11 years into his career. And those were 11 long, I mean, those were 11 years of a lot of hits in the way he played. So uh, he had been he had been beaten up pretty good. So uh, yeah, he he thought he could do it, win one more, and, and and everybody was right to think the way they did. Uh, the, the Ravens they did have a pretty good framework there uh, around them. They did need a quarterback, a, a good solid quarterback, and uh, McNair was right to think he could come in here and maybe take a team to the Super Bowl. Someone who could move the ball, put some points on the board, and let their perennially great defense hunt. Steve might very well have been that guy for them, but there was no question that the clock was ticking. There was a reason the Titans wanted to move on from the 33-year-old, and injuries speeding up the timeline on his career was certainly a big part of that. Steve's former teammate, Derek Mason, had come over from Tennessee to the Ravens the prior year to bring a veteran presence to the wide receiver position, and he was pleased to see the organization go back to the same well with his old running buddy. I figure he's still got two, three, four years left in him if he doesn't take the shots he did in previous years, Mason said. Regardless of what anyone thought, Mason couldn't have been the only one who had broached the idea of a timeline for McNair, even if it was just in their mind or in private. But one thing was for sure, the Ravens had been and continued to be ready-made to go back to the Super Bowl. They had sold themselves on the idea that they were just a solid quarterback away, and had now landed the white whale they believed to represent that. Just as important was the fact that they had put together the exact offseason they needed to get the buy-in on that idea from the disgruntled Ray Lewis, the face of the old guard who had become a bit fed up with the stagnancy that had set in over a few years of missing the playoffs. When asked about the status of Lewis, Brian Billick was even-keeled, as he always seemed to be amidst crisis. While at one point it sounded like Lewis was ready to never play for him again, the Ravens' longtime head coach said that he and Ray had had many substantive talks that had mended the rift between the two. I'm very comfortable with those circumstances and how they came about and what his intentions were, Billick said in regards to the trade request. Things aren't always as they are perceived. I have no doubt in my mind of Ray's commitment level to this team and to me. I have no doubt that he will do what he's always done, which is to be right at the forefront of meetings, practices, and games. Thanks to Ozzie Newsom's deft touch, things were looking up again in Baltimore after two down years. In the span of a few months, he'd use the first round of the draft to secure a big defensive tackle in Haloti Nada, who would allow Ray Lewis to run around and make plays like the old days. In McNair, he'd found the steady veteran hand at quarterback that Baltimore had needed since gambling on letting Trent Dilfer out of the door. Would Steve McNair and all of his talent and prestige prove to be the figure that would take the Ravens back to the promised land? There was of course no telling in that moment, but for his part, he and his new team would get off to a pretty damn good start in 2006. the mistakes of a year ago and they are ready for the 2006 season jamal lewis left side he's across the five he's in from the touchdown ravens on the opening drive of the 2006 season 
First game of the 06 season seemed to follow the Ravens' Super Bowl hopeful script to a T. Jamal Lewis, by then a vested veteran of the offense and a Super Bowl 35 holdover, sauntered into the end zone untouched to get the Ravens off to a 7-0 lead as the first quarter was nearing its end. He wasn't the only of the team's championship-winning vets to get in on the action. Right. Double tight end formation on second down and 12. Sims, time to throw, fires far sideline. It is intercepted by Chris McAllister at the 40. Across midfield, 45-40, 35-30. Down the right sideline, 20, 15, 10, 5. Touchdown, Chris McAllister and the Ravens on the for a second time this afternoon. Chris McAllister had had his ups and downs over the past several years in the locker room, but winning and strong play are always a good salve for that, and week one of 06 would bring that to him twofold. But he would be hardly the only defensive player to make a big play on that day. Here comes Galloway that way, dropping his sim, dropping sets, his pass knocked down, intercepted by a lineman to the 45, to the 40, to the 45, to the 50, down the near side. It's Nagata, Nada down the sideline with a convoy. The big off rookie is knocked out of bounds, short of the seven-yard line. The ball deflected into the hands of the big fella, and he went rumbling down the near sideline. Rookie defensive tackle Haloti Nada snagged another one of Chris Sims' passes pushing the Ravens down into Bucks territory for another score. It wouldn't be the last of Sims' struggles that day, as Baltimore's two best defenders would continue to bring the heat. The one-yard line, 32 it is. They send a suck. Blitz and Sims a dead duck, and he sacked back of the 20-yard line. Ray Lewis runs a stunt. Blitz, and nobody picked him up. Order second down, six again to four from the 45. Dropping Sims, seven-step drop, looks over the middle. Fires downfield, fires downfield. It's intercepted at the 37-yard line. Sailed on Sims, the intended receiver, Clayton and Big Ed Reed, the Iceman. The Iceman cometh and taketh away with 13.28 to go in the fourth quarter. Buccaneers are being shut out by the Ravens, 20 to nothing. There's no question that the defense had come to play for week one, but if the past six years had taught them anything, that was to be expected. In a new development that everyone had been hoping for, Steve and the offense played their roles to perfection. McNair drops the throw. Lob pass back of the end zone. Touchdown, Ravens. Dan Wilcox on the receiving end, and the Ravens continue to pile up the points on the opening day of 2006. The Ravens will wrap up the season opener with a shutout, the end of their road losing streak. The debut of Steve McNair, pick a topic, and this one played out picture perfect for the Ravens. On the same field that the Ravens had won a Super Bowl on back in the opening months of 2001 by playing bruising defense and complimentary offense, they made a statement in the opening game of 2006 that maybe, just maybe, they were finally ready to live up to what they'd done that season. Their defense was every bit the wrecking ball they were billed as, and Steve McNair, with a completion percentage of 62, one touchdown, and most importantly, no turnovers, appeared to be the guiding hand at quarterback they'd been looking for. Opining for the Washington Post a few days later, Michael Wilbon pondered the possibilities. It's natural, after seeing the possibilities in the opener, to wonder how good the Ravens can be if McNair and Ray Lewis can remain healthy the entire season, he wrote. Billick said he had already told his players they had set the bar pretty high in Tampa, and because they had, he didn't want to see anything less, and neither should they. A dominant defense and an unspectacular but efficient offense is a formula the Ravens already know can work. He went on to say that McNair would prove to be that missing piece for a Ravens team that had been ready to go, but thanks to their issues at QB, had very clearly been stuck in neutral. Sure, McNair is 33, with more mileage on him than an 88 Volvo, he wrote. Still, we're talking the definition of a professional here. McNair, on the tail end of his career, is a major upgrade from the erratic bowler, like going from Roseanne Barr to Beyonce. McNair knows how to run an offense and the game. Everybody in a Ravens uniform has to have a comfort level just seeing him in the huddle. 
You mentioned McNair's name to Billick, and he can't stop smiling. Billick said that when the Ravens acquired McNair from Tennessee, he thought it would be one of the highlights of his career to work with such a pro. McNair's answer to everything, Billick said the other day, is whatever you want to try, coach. McNair's not going to turn into Peyton Manning, and he doesn't need to. He's not going to mess up or self-destruct or undermine the team. He'll efficiently manage the game wisely by using what's around him, which includes Jamal Lewis, tight end Todd Heap, and Mark Clayton, and former Titans teammate Derek Mason at wide receiver. McNair knows it's sometimes okay to simply accept punting the ball and turning it over to Ray Lewis instead of the other team's defense. Wilbon noted that Raiders players who had been on the receiving end of a week one blowout watched the end of the game on TV and remarked that they were going to need to be ready for a war next week and would need to get their heads right in time for it. The refrain that all the Ravens would need to get back to a Super Bowl was a steady-handed quarterback had become such a prevailing idea that it was almost cliched by that point. But it's often that cliches are very much rooted in truth, and after a 27-0 blowout over a talented Tampa Bay team, it looked to be proving itself as a reality. By the sound of it, they were already scaring other players around the league. To the chagrin of those Raiders players and much of the rest of the NFL, it will be much more of the same in Week 2. Good morning and welcome to MNC Bank Stadium in Baltimore. The Ravens have won the toss. Janikowski has his left foot into the ball, and this game is underway. DJ Sam fields it five yards deep in the end zone. He's out across the 10. 15, 20. He's got an alley down the sideline. 25, 30, 40. Across midfield, he might go! He's at the 40-yard line, cuts back in, and is caught from behind. On the strength of B.J. Sam's return and a fumble recovered by their defense, Baltimore built a 6-0 lead in the first quarter. It will be understandable if the defense and special teams were a bit frustrated by the offense's inability to capitalize and turn those plays into touchdowns, but if they were, they didn't show it. They'll bring Ronald Curry in motion. Fumble snap, loose ball, and the Ravens think they've got it. The Ravens have recovered the fumble, and they'll have it first and 10 from the Oakland 34-yard line. Oakland would tackle on a field goal of their own to make it 9-3, but as it looked like it would remain a one-score game heading into the locker room, Steve and the offense began to heat up. For much of the second half, Baltimore's defense and offense combined to put five more points on the board, putting the game more and more out of reach for a flailing Raiders team. Here comes the pressure. Walters is going to be sacked and dropped for the safety. Sebastian Janikowski would add to their total with a long field goal, making it 21-9, but it was too little, too late. In front of a then-record sellout crowd at M&T Bank Stadium, the Ravens' defense tied a franchise record with six total turnovers in their home opener and didn't allow for a touchdown for a second straight game. It was the first 2-0 start in franchise history. If you don't score, you don't win, said Ray Lewis, who had seven tackles. That's our philosophy on defense. As long as we keep playing the way they are right now, it's going to be very, very hard to beat us for 60 minutes. That's our game plan. Lewis could sense the trepidation that the Raiders players had already somewhat shown in their comments leading up to the game, and he led their defense towards it like a pack of sharks to a chum bucket. We saw it in their faces once we really started tackling them in the first couple three and outs. They didn't really want to play football, he said. You saw a couple of fumbled snaps, which gave a short field position. Defenders at every level, from linemen like Adelius Thomas, Terrell Suggs, and Kelly Gregg, to secondary players like rookie safety Dewan Landry had gotten in on the action too, with each of the three veterans getting their hands on the ball, while the fifth rounder and Landry led the team in tackles with eight. Fifth-year linebacker Bart Scott, who had a sack in the game, credited everyone's involvement to the team's superstar defensive coordinator, Rex Ryan. We're just trying to be able to be versatile and not let teams just focus on one guy, he said. Every guy on that defense is talented and capable of making a play. It's just a credit to our defensive coordinator and our coaching staff, coaching everybody up and not just certain players. Getting off to the unprecedented 2-0 start was, as Scott suggested, largely a group effort. 
but veteran wide receiver Derek Mason still wasn't happy with the relatively pedestrian output of the offense. We had maybe one drive where we made plays, but other than that, we really didn't muster anything, he said. Our defense played tremendously, but as an offense, we have to get that mentality that the defense is going to save us out of our heads. If we're going to be considered a top-rated offense, we're going to have to carry our own weight. It was an admirable attitude by Mason, and one that ran counter to the safe and conservative mentality that the organization had ostensibly preached by going for a steady veteran like McNair. And it was a combination of that chip on the shoulder of Mason, plus the steady hand of McNair, that would, in fact, lead the Ravens to winning close games. The Cleveland Browns will come out fired up. Why only making the 10th start of his NFL career. Here comes the blitz. Drive drops the throw. He's under pressure. He's wrapped up, but he's brought down by Trevor Price back at the 10-yard line. Four man front for the Ravens. Now Browns bring the fullback in motion. Play action. Fry under pressure. He'll be wrapped up and sacked back at the 6-yard line. Trevor Price and Bart Scott there to drop Fry for a second time this afternoon. Dover will kick it from the 22 left hash mark. A 32-yard field goal attempt. It is up, and Matt Stover is good. The Ravens lead the Browns 3-0 on the Ravens game. In Week 3 at Cleveland, Baltimore picked up where they left off, a strong play from the defense containing quarterback Charlie Fry, and the offense dutifully putting points up on the board, mostly through kicker Matt Stover. The last remaining player on the Ravens that had also been a member of the Browns during the 95 move. But after getting off to a 3-0 lead, Baltimore's defense did something they hadn't done all year. Surrender a touchdown. Down 3-0 from their own 42-yard line on first down. Fry back to pass. Good time. Going to go long. He's got Edwards out the left sideline, and he got it! Fry! Touchdown! What a throw! What a catch! What a play! And the Browns lead, and that's the first touchdown given up by the Ravens defense. 58 wonderful yards! The Browns 7, the Ravens 3. Despite a harried effort against Fry and the Browns offense, Baltimore's defense caved yet again just before the half. Lawrence Vickers is into the game and running back. The rookie from Colorado. Play action fake. Fry looking. He's going to run. Takes it at the 2 with the 1. Touchdown! The Ravens were shell-shocked walking into the locker room down 14-3, sitting in a position they hadn't been in that year. It would take a silent third quarter until finally, perhaps for the first time in 2006, that the offense, led by the grittiest quarterback of their generation, would show some grit and grind on their way to keep the team in the game. Action the yard. Play action. McNair, lob, end zone, touchdown! Todd Heath with the grab, and the Ravens are back on the board. That made the game 14-9 as the fourth quarter opened. After a failed two-point conversion try, the Ravens were in need of a touchdown or two more field goals to walk away with the road win. Stover tacked one on to make the score 14-12 with about 10 minutes left, but it appeared to maybe not be enough, as Fry and the Browns offense marched their way down towards Baltimore's end zone, with the clock dwindling. Appeared was the operative word there, though, and appearances can be deceiving. Right, looks end zone, lobs, throws, intercepted, Chris McAllister in the end zone, and the Ravens will take over. McNair and the offense had to fight tooth and nail to get into Cleveland territory, but they'd make it there, albeit with little time to spare. With 24 seconds left on the clock, Matt Stover lined up for a 52-yard field goal to take a late lead. Right hand, the last original Raven. Matt Stover, his kick is on the way. It is long enough. It is good! And the Ravens have taken the lead. Ray Lewis is set 25 yards off the line of scrimmage in deep coverage. Pass over the middle. It is deflected and caught. Josh Smith comes down with the ball. He fumbles the ball. Loose ball, 30-yard line. The Ravens have Three and zero. 
The Ravens continued their undefeated out of the gate run with, with this third game most representative of exactly what they had been hoping for when they brought a veteran like McNair in. After Mason had made his comments about the offense's lack of productivity against the Raiders, they delivered in the biggest of moments in Week 3, with McNair having yet another signature moment in a career full of them with his game-winning drive for the field goal. That right there, that last drive, explains everything, Ray Lewis said after the game. You take any other young guy and put him in the same situation, and one of those passes might not be there. But that guy is total poise, man. To see the way he orchestrated that last drive as a defense, that's why everybody on the sideline said, we got him, come on. You've got to watch that. That's one of the reasons why he's here. And that's one of the greatest reasons why I truly respect him as a player. After wasted years of band-aids and the failed Kyle Bowler experiment weighing the team down, Ray Lewis was right to be a bit dissatisfied with the plan on offense. But reading that quote after a 3-0 start, one thing was clear. The veteran linebacker who a few months ago had wanted out was all of a sudden bought all the way back in. There was no doubt this would have a cascading effect on the rest of the defense, many of whom looked up to him. Todd Heap, who had been in Baltimore since the ill-fated gamble on Elvis Gareback, was equally effusive in his praise of Steve's steady hand and clutch play. It all starts with Steve, he said. You see his face, and he looked in every single guy's eyes and told us what to expect and what we needed to do. It's really something when everybody has confidence in what's going on, even when we weren't doing it the whole game and weren't being completely successful in putting plays together and drives together the whole game. To be able to do it under pressure at the end of the game and win it, it's a confidence builder for our offense. For McNair's part, he wasn't entirely satisfied, but seemed happy to have a box-checking moment in which the offense could grow together in a galvanizing win. We missed a lot of opportunities in the first half, he said, after completing 23 of 41 passes for 264 yards. When we did have third and short, we didn't execute. Most of that is on my part. We've got to be more efficient in the passing game, but when the plays had to be made, we made them. We knew it was up to us to get this thing done today, and we knew that we could get it done if we just executed and made plays. It was an interesting turn for McNair, who was a long way from being the big fish in the small pond of Mount Olive, Mississippi, and a long way from the days when his physical gifts simply overwhelmed his opponents in his early days in Houston and Tennessee. Now, he was being asked to play a calculated game of chess, advancing the offense one move at a time and keeping the ball and his body safe from harm. It was a markedly different role than he was used to, but given that this was shaping up to be his best shot at a Super Bowl in several seasons, he appeared more than ready to play the role. But despite where he was at in his career, it wouldn't have surprised anyone if Steve still had more Superman moments left within him like he had shown against the Browns. As it happened, he would have yet another one the very next week. Silver approaches the ball and Ruth four is underway at Ebbets Bank Stadium. In the backfield with Damian Tomlinson on second call at six in the Ravens 31. Baltimore showing blitz off the side here. Rivens, Rivers though, floats it. He's got Floyd open and he dances into the end zone. He shed his man. He walks in from the two over the goal line into the end zone. It's the Chargers on top first. In week four, the 3-0 San Diego Chargers and their young quarterback, Phillip Rivers, had come to town and gotten off to a hot start in front of the Ravens' home crowd. After jumping off to that 7-0 lead, it was a mistake by the young Rivers that allowed the wily veteran in McNair to make the game level again. Wide left, wide right, that is Parker on the right side. One back, that's LT behind Rivers, under center. And there's that quick little preset drop, loading over the middle, picked off. He threw it into coverage, and it is picked by Bart Scott. He's going to juke and jive, 30, 25, flip the tackle, and finally McCardell trips him up. There's the mistake-free football coming apart. McNair operating out of the shotgun, he'll throw, fires quickly, caught at the five. Wilcox off his feet, in for the touchdown! Dan Wilcox with the first score of the afternoon for the Ravens. 
After a few field goals from Nate Kading, the Chargers were leading the game 13-7, with nine and a half minutes left to go in the contest. When this happened. Ravens not playing in the slot. White, Lewis in the backfield. McNair guns it over the middle, picked off! A dive by Donnie Edwards, and he's got it. Upfield, he lost it. Sean Phillips reels it back in at the 25-yard line. It's another gift from Lady Luck as the ball rolled right into the midsection of the other Sean, Sean Phillips. Steve's pick should have been a backbreaker. But Baltimore's defense stood strong for a few more drives, and by the time there were three minutes and change left on the clock, the Chargers faced a punt from their own end zone, still hanging on to the 13-7 lead. With three minutes and five seconds to go in the game, Steve McNair and the offense took the ball from their own 40-yard line, down 13-9. And for a second week in a row, the vintage version of Air McNair shined through. Good. McNair to throw, has time, looks to the end zone, throws, complete, three-yard line, Tony! attempt the extra point. It is good. And with 34 seconds left to play, the Ravens have taken the lead. 16-13 in front of the San Diego Chargers. Prayer time for Rivers. He's sacked from behind. And the ball game is over. Jared Johnson with the sack of Phillip Rivers. And the Ravens storm onto the field to celebrate a 4-0 start to the season. On the Saturday night ahead of that game, the Ravens sat down as a team and watched the 1985 boxing match between Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns, in which the veteran Hagler absorbed shot after shot from the challenger and Hearns, but remained in the match and ultimately won after being bruised and bloodied. After making multiple mistakes against the Chargers, the Ravens have proven to be down but never out. Two minutes ago with no timeouts, you know, you just got to be relaxed and, and go out there and make every play count. And I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, shy away from that. You know, I, I live for that. Now at 4-0, it was clear that something special was brewing, and much of it had to do with the team's perseverance and their medal in the big moments. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, we felt really good. Um, you know, we kind of you know, anticipated or hoped that it happened, you know, bringing in Steve in and, and uh, kind of knowing it from the past. And then, like, as each game, as we get going and pulling off that, the Chargers win at home, I know Todd, I know he had to lay out and kind of dove over. I think uh, – um, I think Merriman, I think, had him around the waist or something around his legs, but Todd still extended out and got the ball in the end zone. Um, I got a picture of that somewhere. Uh, it's a great shot. A few years ago, Brian Billick had gone a few proverbial rounds with owner Steve Bashotti, both over their conflicting personalities and also because of disagreements about where the team was heading offensively. Since then, Billick hadn't done much to assuage Bashotti's concerns in that regard, particularly at the quarterback position. That is, until Steve McNair had come along. It might not have been more than a few seasons, but Billick was beginning to get his swagger back and beginning to once again feel like his team could take on anyone in the league, in no small part because they had number nine on their side. We had quite a win against one incredible opponent, Billick said after beating the Chargers. The character that we had to show to do what we did out there in a 15-round boxing match, it wasn't pretty. Derek Mason reflected back on watching Hagler and Hearns and naturally drew the same parallels that Billick had. That's what happened today, he said. We took some hard punches for three quarters. We had a little blood running. But as Hagler said, once he tasted his blood, he figured he had to knock Hearns out or the fight was going to be over. That's pretty much how it was for us. Fourth quarter, two minutes left, we tasted our own blood. We were able to drive the ball down the field and pretty much throw the knockout punch. They couldn't get up. Steve McNair was once again frustrated that he and the offense hadn't been able to put together a four-quarter effort, but echoed the idea that it was the Ravens' resilience that willed them down the field and into the end zone with little time remaining. We put ourselves in bad positions, he said. 
The last drive, we just made up our mind. Let's not make any mistakes, take one play at a time, and go down and score. That's why you play this game in a situation like that, to prove how good you are, to prove how much poise you have, to prove how much confidence you have in each other to get the job done. They certainly wouldn't be winning any style points, but facts were facts. The Ravens' offense, especially the last two weeks, were a big part of why the team had gotten off to a 4-0 start. And as many had hoped, it was the even tempo and trademark toughness of Steve McNair that an attack rife with pieces like Derek Mason, Todd Heath, and Jamal Lewis were finally playing up to, or at least fairly close to, their potential. It was hard not to think back to 2000, as Michael Wilbon had already mentioned in the post after the Week 1 victory, but also equally on Billick's mind had to have been the failures since. The disastrous dart throw on Gearback, the failed round one gamble on Bowler, and the last two years being non-playoff seasons because of it. All of it was assuredly on the veteran coach's mind, as it had contributed to his seat becoming as hot as it had ever been in Baltimore. But one thing was certain. If their team could keep up their hot hand moving forward and get the Ravens back to, or even close to, the Super Bowl, then he would be buying himself quite a bit of breathing room with Bashadi. It had been a long road for Billick, who had seen all the highs and lows on offer for an NFL head coach up to that point, a roller coaster of emotions that would be liable to make a normal man tap out. It was Bart Scott's words after the Chargers' victory that summed up not only the game and not only the 4-0 start, but the entire ethos that Billick had brought to Baltimore, and now, finally, was starting to feel again after a few down years. You keep taking the hits in the mouth, you keep pushing them back, and eventually, somebody's going to break. And we didn't break today. Thanks for listening, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Exit52Podcast, and me at Jake Luke. that's L-O-U-Q-U-E, and hit us up to discuss further. Also, check out our website, theexit52podcast.com, for companion pieces and more.